Greetings, friends. Welcome back to uh, Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where good taste and bad taste collide. Ah, uh, the old, the old fashioned. Yeah, one. I just just did the old fashioned catchphrase. Uh, yeah. Usually, we throw it up a little bit. My name is Whitney Seibold. I'm a film critic. I uh, I write for Slash Film. With me, as always, is my far more intelligent co-host. Lies. William, my, introduce yourself. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic for The Wrap. I also sometimes write for Slash Film, but mostly I do this. And everybody calls me Bibbs. And boy, do we have a lot of movies to review this week. Oh boy, howdy. So many, in fact, that uh, I'm going to list them. And you'll say to yourself, well, golly. <laughs> well, we are catching up from last week. So this is uh, like a two-week load. I know. And I hate doing that. Yeah. And I'm so sorry. I hate it. I really, it really needs to be a weekly show. we got so many movies. <laughs> All right. So here's what we're reviewing this week. Uh, Evil Dead Rise. Ghosted. Quasi. Renfield. Bo is Afraid, Guy Ritchie's The Covenant, not to be confused with the uh, sexy warlock film, uh, Carmen, not to be confused with the sexy warlock film. Uh, There's a sexy warlock film named Carmen? Probably. And uh, <laughs> did I say Bo is Afraid? You said Bo is Afraid. All right. And then I guess lastly, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, Once and Always. Oh, and I saw the Little Richard documentary. Oh, that's right, the Little Richard yeah. documentary. What's, what's that called? It's, it's just... called Little Richard colon I Am Everything. Oh, well, she sure was. He, he was, yeah. Um, it's also one of those uh, uh, episodes where we didn't all see the same things, mm-hmm. but we did see probably the biggest new release of this week, so I think we should start there. Uh, the Super Mario Brothers movie. No, it's <laughs> it's, it's steamrolling over everything, it the Super is. Mario Brothers movie. As, as people suspected it would. It's the only kid film... Within weeks of either side of it, I remember leaving the theater uh, when that like the credits were rolling of that movie, mm-hmm. thinking to myself, "I didn't particularly care for it, but this is going to make a billion dollars." Yeah, and it, and it, it almost yeah. literally is uh, yeah. going to pass a billion dollars worldwide. Yeah. Um, no, but we did see uh, the fifth Evil Dead film. Yay! It's called Evil Dead Rise. Not connected uh, in any kind of meaningful way to any of the continuity of the other films. No, and it could the, be its own thing and you'd never know. And uh, that's appropriate because the continuity is the least important thing in the, in the Evil Dead movies. Uh, I mean, a little bit. Here's, especially once they started like not having the same characters. Uh-huh. It's not like we're following the same character from the Evil Dead remake from 2013. Mm. This is all new. It's just basically, it turns out, the one big new wrinkle in this one is that we discover... For a fact, that there's more than one Book of the Dead. That's okay. a, that's an actual thing because if you'll recall, and I want to talk a little bit about the whole franchise because this franchise is actually really important to me mm. as like a film lover. Um, the Evil Dead movies. The first movie was about uh, a group of kids, college kids, going to a cabin in the woods. One of the original Cabin in the Woods movies that kind of solidified that genre as we know it now. Mm. Uh, well, one, one of many that came out in the late 70s and early 80s. Sure, so. but this is just one of the most iconic, and I think it's one of the most easily copied. Just people just go to a cabin, there's a thing. Well, and it's, ah! it's also widely redistributed frequently. I think the Evil Dead movies right. have, maybe more than any other films, mm. been reissued on home video. That's quite possible. But in any case, the original film was an independent movie directed by Sam Raimi. Let's just let's go into it. Mm. It's an independent movie directed by Sam Raimi, uh, starring Bruce Campbell back when they were nobody. They mm. had to, like, ask dentists for money to finance this thing. Yeah, and this was just Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell. Uh, they met in college. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were trying to get some odd jobs in the film industry, and mm. they were just shooting this on a shoestring. Yeah, they shot some short uh, films. They actually shot a short film called Within the Woods. 
as like sort of like a test proof, proof of concept. Yeah, yeah, and and unfortunately, they've never been able to put that on like a DVD release or anything because they used a lot of pre-existing music, and because of the way they mixed it, it's all mixed in together. They can't remove the dialogue and add in new music in order to, and so they can't afford to pay like John Carpenter all that money or whatever hmm. like that. So we will never see like an official version of Within the Woods probably, but if you can find it online, check it out. Uh, but yeah, it's about a group of college kids. They go to a cabin in the woods. They find once they're there that the previous inhabitants had left some stuff behind, including a very creepy ancient book bound in human flesh, inked in human blood. And when they listen to a recording of like a historian old, reading loud from it, old real real tape uh, cassette recorder, yeah. yeah, they figure, hey, what's this? They press play. The guy is just basically, and here's a phonetic translation of uh, phonetic pronunciation of everything in the book, and it summons demons. All of his friends get infected by demons, and before long, Bruce Campbell is the only one left. Everyone he he knows and loves has been turned into a demon. That is, when they're not trying to kill him, mm. are like. Like mutilating themselves, like it's really gross, and uh, yeah, and it it ends really badly for everyone. It's a yeah, very mean spirited film. It's it's a mean spirited film uh, in a good way. I, I hold that even though the first uh, the first Evil Dad, which is just called the Evil Dad, yeah, uh, I still hold that it's a, still a comedy film in many ways. It's a dark dark uh, comedy. It's a very I feel bleak like, comedy. I would say, but yeah, it's. Funny. I feel like uh, the reason Sam Raimi's films uh, caught on with so many uh, people, especially like young at like adolescents, love these movies, mm-hmm. uh, is because he's using uh, comic timing to sell horror beats. Yeah, Looney Tunes, uh, Three Stooges. So, uh, this is kind of where and his, so his, there's this is where his mentality is. At, yeah, so there, there's there's a certain stuff. kind of. Uh, heightened energy to these movies yeah. uh, that you wouldn't find in something like uh, The Last House on the Left, which is oh, yeah. actually a very dour movie. <laughs> it's, um, that's one of uh, the dourest movies. Yeah. Just it, it, it's, yeah, I mean, it's based on a Bergman film. Yeah, it's dour. Yeah. Um, and uh, so when it came time to make uh, Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn. Mm-hmm. And again, uh, the first one was, a, was an unexpectedly huge hit. Stephen King mm-hmm. went like, public and just gave quotes to it saying this is one of the scariest movies I've ever seen. It, it got it was, a lot of traction uh, in censorship circles because yeah. it was so bloody. Yeah. Uh, it started getting uh, targeted, especially in England. It was one of the video nasties. Yeah. Uh, look up what the video nasties are. Yeah. Um, and there's one scene in particular in Evil Dead which is particularly shocking and mm. to a point that it's merely unpleasant, I feel. And even Sam yeah, Raimi that, has argued he's, that he's the apologized tree, for There's it, a yeah. scene where a tree attacks a woman and some very unpleasant things happen. And even Sam Raimi has said, I went too far. Yeah, I was that, young that and I had something much. to prove or something like well, that. Well, yeah, you're, you're, you're 21. You know, you're yeah. not, don't don't appreciate some of the things you're doing. But yeah, watching uh, Little Dead 1, there's that one bit where it's just kind of like, oh, that's just not fun. Yeah. yeah. And so... No, um, Evil Dead 2 is is a, a sequel, but it's more of a remake. Well, it's uh, a somebody... remake for, like, the first half, and then, and then it goes uh, yeah, into it another goes... direction. Because uh, I, I saw somebody posit that it was uh, just a straight sequel, and that Ash is just so stupid that <laughs> they just decided to go back to the same haunted cabin anyway. Uh, that's fun. Because that's the that's the arc of the Evil Dead movies, mm-hmm. uh, and it's it's one of the more amusing aspects is that the the character played by Bruce Campbell, his name is Ash, uh-huh. uh, at Ashley Williams, and they call him Ash. Mm-hmm. Uh, he um, he gets 
better at fighting demons as the series goes on Mm -hmm. and he becomes like a dumber asshole like more and more (laughs) of a dumb asshole the the more the series goes on so by the time you get to army of darkness Uh he's just he's a a complete dick and he he has no brain he goes from being in the original film he's he's a character in revenge of the nerds he's a Mm. dweeb he speaks latin like he's actually like a total nerd Mm. second movie he's just kind of a -a workaday schlub third movie he's one of the bad guys in revenge of the nerds yeah like he's, he's one step removed in, from ogre like he's turned into yeah, yeah. To kind of this bad guy character and but uh, the, the cool thing about evil dead 2 is that you know they they sort of recapped the first movie in the first i don't know 20 minutes or so they mm-hmm. shrunk down the number of characters to just make it about ash and his girlfriend uh and then what if the night continued and more people showed up to the cabin that movie is one of the biggest reasons why I do what I do. <laughs> I'll, I was yeah, so I absolutely enamored of the inventiveness, the imagination, the style, the handmade qualities. The fact that you can mm. see the wires and stuff made me more interested in the creative process of making movies. Yeah, and that I, in turn made me less terrified of horror and more interested in it. Sort of the as way a genre. it's constructed, yeah. So this is this is one of the reasons why I love movies, and it's one of the reasons, especially why I love horror movies. I've probably seen Evil Dead Two, and this is not an exaggeration, mm-hmm. over one hundred times. But I've I've seen it many times as well. Yeah, um, and it, and it always uh, works. It's a good movie. Yeah. Well, and and for those reasons, I said it. It kind of it, it plays with the language of comedy more than mm-hmm. I think it does horror, and uh, also there's something very appealing about this notion of. Uh, having fun with death. Mm. That's why a lot of people go to horror movies. They want to kind of giggle at danger. Mm-hmm. And this is a movie that turns death into almost literally a Three Stooges routine. I yeah. think there's even some gags that Sam Raimi took straight from Three Stooges. The scene where they, they slam a monster's head mm. in a cellar door. And an eyeball and pops, an eyeball out, pops like an out of its head. Noise. Yeah. And, and there's, of course, like a close-up of the, the eyeball floating in the air while the, the background kind of zooms past. It's zooming through the air cartoon style and it lands in someone's mouth. Yeah. Um, and with with a big cartoon gulp noise, like, the, and she kind of, and then she kind yeah. of like gags as the, the yeah. optic nerve is now, sticking out of her mouth. Obviously, that's horrifying yeah. and gross, but the actual way that it is played is mm-hmm. straight out of a Three Stooges. Yeah, it's absolutely absurd. Uh, it's it's really really enjoyable. It's unabashedly adolescent. You can tell mm. that uh, poor uh, Bruce Campbell mm. was just tortured within an inch of his life making yeah. that movie. Well, you you uh, made a point I think a few times, and I've come around on it. Mm. Is um, the first two Evil Dead movies in particular, mm-hmm. um, it's not so much Bruce Campbell fighting demons mm-hmm. as it is Bruce Campbell, the actor, mm-hmm. fighting Sam Raimi. This is yeah, like it's, it's like it's like duck a muck if it was a horror movie, more or less. And we just never yeah. pulled out to see the, Sam uh, Raimi going. Hey, hey, hey. The, the mythology within the movies is so I think deliberately weak. Yeah, and the style is so just forthrightly interesting. Like yeah. you can't help but see the filmmaker. You said you you got into uh, movies because. The style is so strong in these movies. It's one of the big reasons. That you you don't have to be very sophisticated to understand that this is a very directorly kind of a picture. Yeah, you Sam can Raimi see the big... hand of the filmmaker. It's yeah. not invisible. It's very, very clear. Mm. And it really does feel like what else will Sam Raimi do mm. to, to not just to Bruce, Campbell, Bruce Campbell. To Bruce Campbell uh, and to us. Yeah, this is yeah. one of the Evil Dead 2 is one of the great jump scare movies. Mm. And I think it's one of the best edited horror movies in that regard. If you'll watch 
not very good horror movies that are trying to pull off a jump scare like someone's searching around mm, oh they, they slide they open the curtain in the in the thing and there's no mm, one there and mm, you can you can, after a while you can just feel the rhythm and you know when the jump scare set, is going to set come. your watch to it yeah. exactly but the cool thing about evil dead and i've i've done this experiment with people and it's always borne fruit um every jump scare in the movie and there's countless mm. <laughs> there's so many um they're on like a random setting Timing wise, it's never <laughs> the same beat over and over again. It's like one, two, three. Ah, the next one is like one. Ah! The next one is like one, two. Th- it goes to like nine, and yeah. then it goes ah. Uh, you never get comfortable. He's constantly keeping you on the edge of your seat. This is one of the great scream in a theater and spill your popcorn movies. Yeah, yeah, I love uh, it. It's great. Uh, I love Army of Darkness. Uh, that, that's it's so fun. Th- that's. That's another. It's. I mean, it is a it's cartoon. A, like, yeah. there's a, a a scene where um, Ash like comes upon a vacuum. Yeah. Like, there's this demonic vortex that's kind of like starts sucking him in. He pulls oh, himself yeah. out. His face literally like rubbery. Like a, like a Texas yeah. thing. So it, it is. It, there, there's even cartoon sound effects of yeah. uh, you know slapping well, noises and pointing noises. It, in Army of Darkness, uh, which was filmed a few years later, and mm. they actually threw some money at Sam Raimi for this because it's like a period piece. <laughs> some. Some. It's, <laughs> For, for a relatively cheap mm. horror movie in the 90s, more money than you'd think. Um, Ash gets sent back in time, and now it's like a, a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, except it's, here's a workaday guy who works at like a box store mm. uh, who is sent back in time, and he's the chosen one, and the chosen one means cartoon rules apply to him. Mm. He can take infinite amounts of punishment. Uh, and over the course of the film, he... Tries to locate the Book of the Dead, the thing that keeps sending all of these demons out to kill everybody. Mm-hmm. He screws up, and instead of just taking the book, he unleashes more demons. One of the demons is a clone of him, so Bruce Campbell gets to play the bad guy as well. And it all leads to a big old war between Bruce Campbell, a whole bunch of knights, and a whole army of skeletons of varying degrees of cheapness. Mm-hmm. Um it's not a particularly scary movie. There's a sequence in a um, uh, windmill yeah. that has some creepy bits in it, I feel. But, for, like, genuinely, just at least monster effects. There's some, like, there's a bit where, like, a head grows out of Bruce Campbell's shoulder and it starts out with just an eye, and that's genuinely creepy. But this is now officially a horror comedy. It's yeah. got some of the most quotable lines of dialogue. Like, of the 90s? And to, the, to the point where it was ripped off wholesale by, uh, um, uh, was it Nukem. Duke Nukem? Yeah, this yeah. video game series took lines of dialogue from Army of Darkness. Yeah. And, and essentially Ash's character from Army of Darkness, yeah. which is different from the previous two movies. Right. But and, like, it uh, just, and made it a video game protagonist. Yeah, it's between, in terms of, like, modern pop culture, Army of Darkness is second maybe only to James Cameron's Aliens as, like, the most quoted movie. Whether or not you realize <laughs> or, it, or you like have a, seen it. Or, like, Holy Grail, stuff like that. Um, I guess Holy Grail, if you're going yeah. back a little further, but yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Bruce Campbell has gone on record about how much he kind of hates the movies. Um <laughs> Because they're not he's, fun for him. Well, they're not. They're, a, tortured. they're not fun for him. Uh, yeah. He and Sam Raimi have a very strange relationship. They kind of mm. like they will always work together. Yeah. But they also kind of hate each other. Yeah. Um, they feel like they feel a, like feuding siblings. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
one of Sam Raimi's hallmarks as a director is he likes to include uh, his car. It's a oh, yellow yeah. yellow Oldsmobile Delta 88 mm-hmm. in all of his movies. It's uh, it's the car that uh, mm-hmm. Sp- uh, Tobey Maguire gets the with great power comes great responsibility speech in and Spider Man. Yeah, uh, uh, he even found a way to like sneak it into his Western movie, The Quick and the Dead. But it's like it's under like a tarp or something. Like he's, he stripped it down and he put like a covered wagon cover on top of it. But it's that old Oldsmobile. Technically, it's there. Um, it's not in his film for Love of the Game. It was cut. So okay. technically, it's not in that movie. I always, I wondered um, about that because it feels like it, there's it no makes not it makes to. two appearances in uh, his uh, Doctor Strange movie. Mm, there's a scene yeah. where he goes into like uh, Doctor Strange goes into another dimension. And there's like cars floating around. It's right there in the middle of the screen. Yeah. So it's easy to see. Um, Bruce Campbell knows that he puts the Sam Raimi puts this car in his movies, mm, and he's vowed revenge and, against that car. And and he, he well, he kind of hates Sam Raimi. Yeah. And as, by extension, kind of hates the car. The only thing he said about the car is, something very magical happened in that car. That's why Sam Raimi wants to... No, the, the implication <laughs> is Sam Raimi, Sam Raimi had sex in the, in the car, car. But yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, whether, that's not been confirmed. That's just that's, something that's Bruce just, Campbell has implied. That's it's just prob- a suggestion. It's yeah. probably a lie. Bruce Campbell, make, he bullshits a lot. He does. Um, but he, evidently, this is true, he goes up to the car and he'll peel pieces off of it. Like he'll, like... <laughs> <laughs> kind of break little things and just like wreck it. Like, like he's yeah. trying to slow, like just things he can pull off with his hands. Like he's really trying to wreck the car. So like he and, he and Sam Raimi kind of kind of butt heads yeah. a lot. Uh, he said he wasn't going to do Ash anymore. He yeah. hated being recognized as just Ash. Well, it typecast uh, him a lot, and he he mm-hmm. was he had a moment where it seemed like he was going to be a big thing. Mm-hmm. The people said like apparently in the eighties he had the best headshot in Hollywood. Yeah, and he looked like a movie star. He's got the he's got a big chin, a nice square yeah. jaw. And he to has, me, he's handsome and he's really really funny. And, and to be fair, Sam Raimi like tried to put him in other stuff. Like he really wanted Bruce Campbell to be Dark Man. That's right. And, and the, the studio Liam said the studio said we need someone who's like a bit more bit more well known. And I'm like Liam Neeson in and, the early nineties. Yeah, like, Liam Neeson was a huge quantity in 1990. No, no, it wasn't until uh, like Schindler's List that Liam Neeson became Liam Neeson. Yeah. Like it's like a weird lateral move. If you, I like Liam Neeson in that movie, mm-hmm. but that's a lateral move that totally yeah. could have been a bruce campbell film it's a shame uh, but uh, yeah they they were gonna they were gonna close the book on yeah. on well, evil there was, dead there wasn't a movie like they they had an ending for evil for army of darkness aka evil dead 3 aka medieval dead uh Sam Raimi wanted to call it medieval it's dead, a better yeah. title uh but uh he it, there was gonna be an ending in which ash actually wound up in the future and it was gonna be like an omega man kind of thing mm. i still would have liked to have seen that movie but the one that they ended up filming a totally new ending for the theatrical release, that kind of gave it a happy ending, but also yeah. suggested that Ash will be fighting demons for the rest of his life. Decades later, people kept asking, are you ever going to do another Evil Dead? Are you yeah. ever going to do another Evil Dead? Are you and, ever going to do another Evil and Dead? And Bruce Campbell always said no. It's like, yeah. no, I'm yeah. too, too old for it. I have trouble getting out of bed. Yeah. But eventually they decided to do a TV series. The TV series was reasonably successful. And uh, they also, but you know, I have a confession to make. As much as I love this series. Never seen the show. Well, it's because it's on stars. So I no didn't one, have stars. So no one can. Nobody has stars. Oh yeah. Uh, so no one can see it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I know it was on Netflix for a while, but then shit I, happened. But I know I need to see that show. I heard it was good. I was on a schmodown with the stars of Ash vs. Evil Dead. I'm actually very jealous. Yeah. Of that. Um, <laughs> yeah. We had like sort of a horror throwdown, uh, and it, it was me and it was um, uh, John Schnapp, the late, the, great, the late, John late great John yeah. Schnapp. Uh, each of us was paired with a different cast member of Ash vs. Evil Dead, and Bruce Campbell was the, the, the host. The host of, of yeah. he was the one asking the trivia questions, That's, and he kept screwing up. Of like, course, he, uh, he wasn't taking it Bruce, seriously. Bruce Campbell doesn't care. He's like not getting a huge paycheck. He for just, this, he, you just know? he just like when we, I'm going to go on. I'm going to fucking wing it. That's what he did. Yeah, but it was still yeah. fun. 
But it was yeah, very um, fun my, my my partner was an actress named Dana DiLorenzo, and and uh, she was she was very game. Yeah, you won, and we won. Yeah, you did a good job. You missed like what? I think you missed a Lost Boys question because you hadn't seen it. Yet. I hadn't seen it at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah which is so. kind of weird because you're actually kind of a horror guy, and that one kind of slipped by. There's there's just there's always some. certain hallmarks that I hadn't seen. Yeah, the yeah. Lost Boys was one of them. So we're not going to speak to the show, but they did remake Evil Dead as just Evil Dead, not the Evil Dead. Mm. Always confusing. Uh, directed by Fede Alvarez, who would go on to do stuff like um, uh, what was that movie we did with uh, Jane Levy and uh, the guy from Avatar? Jane Levy and the guy from Avatar. Yeah, you know, the one Home Invasion movie made a sequel and everything. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. What oh you're my about. god! Why am I blanking on that? Oh, I'm, <laughs> oh, I'm getting old. Are you t- oh, you're talking about Don't Breathe? I'm talking about Don't Breathe. Oh, okay, yeah. Yes, yeah. he did Don't Breathe. He did the sequel. Yeah. He did um the... Uh, he didn't do the sequel. He, not, not he the like, s- co-wrote the sequel. He did the though. sequel to um, Girl, uh, Dragon girl with the Dragon Tattoo. The American sequel to Girl yeah. with the Dragon Tattoo. The girl... Girl played with fire. Girl. No. No, that was the... the girl in the Spider's Web. That girl in the Spider's Web, which I... It's totally forgettable, but it's, I liked it a little bit more than you. Yeah, it's just not, yeah. a big nothing movie. Yeah, but, uh, but, um, but his Evil Dead, I will give him credit, mm-hmm. because that is basically a remake of Evil Dead. They changed the context a little bit. So instead of just going to a cabin in the woods for a vacation, they were going into a cabin in the woods for, for detox. Yeah, yeah, one of like one of the characters was going was detoxing from narcotics addiction, and this was their uh, opportunity to get them away from everything, get them mm-hmm. away from all the drugs, and that added a different context to it, a little bit of. So uh, what, they they read the evil book. That <laughs> character gets possessed by a demon. Yeah, and for a, a portion of the movie, you're not sure how much of that is withdrawal and mm-hmm. how much of that is like yeah. demonic and for once it's actually kind of like a metaphor for something and i'm not mm-hmm. saying it's like terribly not intelligent metaphor, no it's not yeah. graceful horror doesn't have to be graceful horror mm-hmm. can totally be in your face and i actually really like that remake is it necessary probably mm-hmm. not was it very entertaining yeah it's really yeah, I gross it... i actually appreciate that fede alvarez because it always weird me out that, like, Sam Raimi threw the gauntlet down for, like, a whole generation for, like, these, like, really bravura camera moves mm-hmm. and just the very distinctly uh, a grand visual style. And so few filmmakers took that and ran with it. I've seen yeah, Steven well. Spielberg do homages to mm-hmm. Sam Raimi's camera work, but I don't see a lot of horror movies having the gall uh-huh. to fucking throw a camera across the room the way mm-hmm. Sam Raimi would. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> Edgar Wright. Um, Edgar Wright is, Ed, is Ed, one of Edgar the exceptions. Right, yeah. Edgar Wright wouldn't exist without Sam Raimi. That, Edgar um, Wright is one of the exceptions mm-hmm. to that rule. I totally grant you that. Uh, I, but I appreciate I, that I, movie yeah. capturing that and, and just the fact that that still felt fresh well, the, said a lot about the industry and maybe not so much I, about I feel like film. that that remake of Evil Dead has less to do with the Evil Dead movies and more to do with the remake trend in general that it was part of uh, a lot of these movies were kind of taking these original concepts and grinding them down into the dirt again kind yeah. of making them uh, in the style of what was hip in like the mid 2000s 2010s thank you Michael Bay uh, yeah, with with the remake of Texas Chainsaw kind of kicked yeah. off he, the popular he, wave. Marcus Nispel directed it. Yeah. Credit where credit is due. Michael Bay mm. just produced it. But I, yeah, that, but, that, uh, that remake's okay too. I don't dislike that remake. Well, some of those, some of the remakes are good. Some of them are really awful. Mm. Uh, the the point is, uh, they they were sort of emblematic of just a, a it was a dir- dearth of creativity. It was and, a uh, yeah, and uh, I feel like 
what they did is they took the original Evil Dead and they said, let's just make it like a straight up horror movie. Let's not put the Sam Raimi style in it. Let's how would this function? They took the camera style, but not the humor. Yeah, I like, think that's notable. And yeah. I think the question was, would it function if we just sold it as straight horror? And mm. not yeah. really. I think the I think, gore, I think the gore is amazing in that movie. Really People gross. just mutilate themselves and yeah. slicing their tongues off, and yeah. there's a wonderful chainsaw through the head scene right at the end. Well, yeah. it's literally raining blood from the sky. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the ending is pretty fucking. That, that, that's pretty give, great. Gotta give them um, that. Yeah. The rest of the movie sort of forgettable. Like the characters don't. Like, I just stand out. But part of uh, it is also I have such a profound relationship with the original films. Mm. That even a very good remake, and I've I've argued in print that it's a very good remake. I think it's one of the better remakes of horror movies, mm-hmm. at least of the last twenty years. Um, it just can't make that impact. It, yeah. It's not the same as like watching the scene in Evil Dead One where someone gets a pencil to their Achilles tendon. Yeah, yeah. it's just not going to sear itself into my mm-hmm. brain because that I've already got that kind of gory moment. Mm. It's actually really hard. I, there aren't a lot of modern movies, even the ones that are trying to be gory. There's not a lot of them that make me like go, "Oh, I'm gonna remember that." Yeah, like I just don't have that as often. Mm-hmm. Um, I suspect people aren't being as creative with the gore, or maybe it's just I don't care enough about the characters to be that mm-hmm. you know incensed when things happen. Um, I will say this: there's a couple of really good gore moments in. Evil Dead Rise, which came yeah. out about ten years after uh, the remake, uh, it is also its own thing. Uh, it turns out that there was uh, there have been there are three copies of the Book of the Dead, mm. uh, which suggests to me I don't they don't come out and say it that the original movies was one of those copies. The one from the remake might have been another copy, mm. and now this is a third copy. Well, but... and, the, and that's something they introduced in Army of Darkness as well, that there are oh, three the... books. Oh my yeah. god, I just, I just put yeah. that together. Maybe so, those, so you're saying those were <laughs> all valid yeah. books of the day. Nobody said anything about three books, because he didn't say the magic words, so they, yeah, they, oh, yeah. they, 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 they seemed fake at first. Uh, that's um, probably true. But in any case, uh, really? this is about a family in uh, Los Angeles. They live uh, at the top of a dilapidated apartment mm. building. There is an earthquake, and underneath the building, uh, the building was built on top of an old bank. The, there's a big sinkhole. They yeah. go down to the sinkhole. They find in the vault mm. a book of the dead and some vinyl recordings. And they go upstairs, and oh. they open up the book, and the book is super scary, and they play the recordings, and of course the recordings are more literal, just phonetic readings from the book. And of course, demons come to life, and the first thing that happens is they infect the mom. So now it's the Evil Dead, except it's more about a killer mom specifically. Yeah. Uh, and they, they, they don't uh, really. They, yeah. Unfortunately, they don't do a lot with that concept. I it's, wish they yeah. did more with it. Yeah. There, there's there yeah. uh, again the in keeping with. Uh, all of the Evil Dead movies, the, the mythology is very weak. There's a, a, a it's book, just an excuse for yeah, shit to happen. There, there's a, a book yeah. you read it, monsters come out, and there's a lot of a lot of blood and attack. The, the rule there aren't uh, a lot of rules really. When when mm. you're Sam Raimi and you're you're more interested in style than story, mm-hmm. that functions. Yeah. Uh, this film isn't stylish enough to accommodate its weakness, and I feel the same way about the previous film as well. Mm. Uh, the um, Sam Raimi was trying to make, by my estimation, kind of an antidote to Hollywood horror. Yeah. Things were getting pretty big and slick. There were big horror hits, things like The Exorcist and Jaws in the previous decade. And uh, he wanted to do something a little bit shabbier. And I think that's where uh, 
sort of where the film's raison d'etre comes in and why it caught on the way it did. At least the it original. Was, right? It was an antidote to all of the, yeah. the hip stuff, and now we're sort Although of... Although Army of Darkness was more hip stuff, I, but, you know. I, 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 well, Army of Darkness is such such a bonkers film. It's 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 a joke. It uh, is, I'm just saying. It wasn't always like, we're going to do pure horror. Like, it was yeah, never really... Right, it was right. Never really about that. But I've, I feel like we've sort of cycled around, and now the Evil Dead movies are just the bland Hollywood horror that oh, the originals I, were, I were kind of tr- trying to get away from. No, I think that's a stretch. I really do. I, I don't look at Evil Dead Rise and see the movie everyone else is making. Because, if for no other reason, I don't think mainstream studio... This is a Warner Brothers movie. Mm. I don't see mainstream studio horror movies letting themselves get this gory. It doesn't. Know, it doesn't yeah. th- that's the one thing. Mm. Maybe the only thing that keeps this movie and this franchise uh, differentiated from other similar films of its ilk. I've seen so many demonic possession movies over the last decade, and a lot of them are basically, we hired a contortionist, and they did some cool contortionist things. And you know Mm. what? Some of those movies are good. The Last Exorcism, legitimately good, cool horror movie, but Last Exorcism, Devil Inside, all these movies, they don't go to the visceral, violent extremes that even Evil Dead 5 does. And I think that's where, even though for us as Evil Dead fans, this feels repetitive, Mm. and I felt the same way about the remake, uh, the environment into which this is coming is not... This is still singular today, even though tonally it's got a lot of similarities, it's still... A lot grosser yeah. than the majority of the stuff, and I think that's where they kind of, I think they're resting on that a little too much. There's yeah. definitely some really cool gore moments in this. There's a great moment with a cheese grater. That's just it's a it's, brief moment. It's a brief it's, moment, yeah. but it's but it's something that you can wrap your head around. It's something mm. you have in the house. You know that if that happened to you, you kind of can sense what that would feel like yeah. when someone's like being like sliced clean in half and then like sewn on to another person or something like that. That's so gigantic. I can't even imagine what that feels like. Yeah, well, it's, so it's, I, I'm it's not really the, the pencil through the Achilles tendon. You can exactly. picture what that would be like. Exactly. That's, and that's why that's one of the moments in this movie that really sticks with me because I can wrap my head around that. That's mm. something that when I look at a cheese grater, I'll think of it. Yeah. But a lot of the broader gore in this movie, some of which is very fun. Um, it's not something I'm terribly concerned about. Yeah. And so as a result, it feels more like uh, an amusement park ride experience, like a haunted house, kind mm. of like, ah, a popcorn kind of thing, than it does really much of anything else. I, I do think that there is some visual ingenuity. There's a really fun bit where um, the family is able to kick the demon out of the apartment and into the hallway, mm. and all they can see is through like the little uh, spy. Oh, the people, the yeah. people, and so and we they, get in touch in, in, like with a fisheye lens. Yeah. yeah, so they just—it's basically just that shot, and a whole bunch of shit is happening in that hallway, but we only see what comes across that lens. Uh-huh. And I thought they had some fun with that. That's where a, they started to get a little uh, humor in there. That started. I, I that, think that uh, I think the photography is a big issue, and the editing yeah. in this movie. Um, it, like so many uh, modern films, it's it's filmed in really low light. And, it's very dark. And, and I think a lot of yeah. that makes a lot of the the just the visual continuity uh, a little difficult to follow. You don't know where some apartments are in relation to others. It, it also uh, hurts the contrast a little bit, like mm. that these horrible things are happening in a place that was already kind already, of dark yeah. and shadowy is mm. 
less frightening maybe than if it happened in a place that was well, kind so of looking nice. If your comment is, uh, I guess they don't really make a comment, but they could have made a comment about how mm. this is about domesticity, about a family mm. unit dissipating, about a mother mm. sort of turning on the children. Uh, have her invade a very domestic-looking space yeah. uh, and have it slowly deteriorate, but have the lights stay up. That would be a that lot been, scarier, I think. Scary. I agree. Um, but yeah, this is a movie about a mom. And it's again, yeah. I, I like the kids. I think they do mm-hmm. a pretty good job of giving the characters some personalities, the main characters. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of side characters on the apartment complex who Just are some, like a, the, a bullet point so, each. Some neighbors. Yeah. That's the old guy who, who says he owns a gun, so you know that'll be important later, that kind of thing. Um, but the three kids, there's like a kid who wants to be a DJ and a kid who's just starting to get political and a little girl who's just kind of scared of things, but she's still pretty cool. Like the mom, the sister who comes to visit, they are, they feel like real enough characters that I actually gave a shit about them. So that's nice. Mm -hmm. Um, but when you build on those characters and you develop those characters and then you give us this beautiful metaphor, of what happens when the mom that we all rely on to keep their shit together when everything is falling apart, what happens when she literally falls apart, mm. when she starts expressing all of the most inner evil, hateful yeah. things that you might that you fear your parents might think of you? Mm. What what happens when they start actually attacking you with all that violence? That was that has so much potential and to see it just become after a bit, frankly, just another Evil Dead movie with some perfunctory theming yeah. tacked on. Um, no, not even it, it's, interesting theming. Uh, no, it's, it's like it's 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 a little underwhelming. Yeah, it's a little uh, underwhelming. And, and the problem is when she starts saying these things, uh, like mm. these really horrible things, but like insulting her children, like mm. I, I hated raising you, that kind yeah. of stuff. She's already completely taken over by the demon at that point. So, yeah. you know, it's just this demonic force taunting the children rather mm. than the mother saying anything untoward. There's definitely uh, this weird moment where um, there's a moment where like the little girl is left alone for a second mm. and she's tempted to open the door for her mom. And she's been like obstructed by a thing. And, in the audience, we're supposed to think two things. One, don't do that. Yeah. I know better than that. Don't do that. You're in a horror movie. Don't do that. And, but you're and, also and supposed we, to... And we saw this in a rowdy theater. So we sure. actually had people yelling oh, out, don't do that. It was great. It was it. a really <laughs> stressful theater. Because in addition to a couple of people who were giving like this kind of banal running commentary yeah. over the whole thing... Well, like, a lot of don't go in there kind of stuff. There was don't know? go in there stuff, and I'm fine with that. But when it comes down to like, oh, they picked up that piece of glass. I'm like, mm-hmm. yes... That's not no. commentary. Well, like that's they, just telling me. Okay. Well, they were astonished. Oh, I picked up that piece of glass. I didn't pick yeah. up that tone, but anyway, that's not a thing. There was also a guy who was like in our aisle who was snoring throughout <laughs> the entire movie. <laughs> he asleep throughout he the movie. Fell asleep the entire movie, and he was really loudly and, snoring and, too. And I gotta say, I, I, I like seeing movies under those circumstances. I don't. I I understand that um, some people like you know. Mm. sacred silence in whatever movie well, they see but I, I also appreciate a visceral reaction especially if I'm seeing a scary movie like well, in a late but on that's a Saturday night a visceral reaction yeah. is not a guy sleeping through it that's not no. a reaction that's just like background noise that's mm. just like starting to get on my nerves a little bit the other thing that really I just I, I wasn't ready for and I haven't really seen much of and I hope this isn't too much of a thing were the people in front of us like, taking mo- pictures of the screen I think yeah. that they were taking short videos of the gory scenes for TikToks oh god and I was like that's don't do that come on because here's the deal we talk about seeing a movie in a theater the way it's meant to be seen. And yeah, there's some people want to see a movie in a very reverential. Everyone, 
If you respond, respond directly to the movie. Otherwise, keep quiet and let's let the movie do its thing. There's also an appreciation for the rowdy, boisterous opening of Scream 2 kind of horror movie. You know, we're all here to have a good time uh, uh, kind of vibe. But there's a certain element of chaos that can enter a movie theater situation that a filmmaker can't plan for. Hmm. And I'm pretty sure the way your movie was intended to be seen was not with four separate distractions on all (coughs) sides of you. Bless you. Excuse me. Bless you. They're not like... It wasn't intended to be seen with that much distraction. Yeah. So it's... That that's that's unfortunate, but whatever you, you you roll the dice every time you go into a theater, I suppose. But in any case, um, there's the don't go in there moment when like she's like, oh, maybe I'll open the door for my mom. Maybe my mom's okay, and we all know better. But we're also supposed to think, oh, she cares so much. She loves her mom. Mm. I sympathize. Um, on some level, that wasn't that wasn't working. Yeah, and I think um, <laughs> it's because they just laid all the cards out so heavily yeah, that everything was so dire, so dark, completely, even when the terror backed up a bit and the demons were like trying to like convince people that they were not demonic. They weren't even trying this time. <laughs> At least in Evil Dead, like Henrietta in the cellar would just suddenly look like her old self. Yeah. And like that, not what's happening here at all. Um, so I'm 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 gonna say this for Evil Dead Rise. I don't think it's bad. Okay. I think it's a little perfunctory, which is unfortunate because I thought they gave themselves some new context, which could have like the like the remake, uh, taken the stuff we like from Evil Dead and juiced it up a bit, given it some new meaning, given it some new avenues to be scary. Thought they could have done more with that. But I did appreciate the gore. I did appreciate the haunted house. Uh, like the real go inside a haunted house, get people jumping out at you kind of vibes. Mm. I think it mostly works on that level. So I don't, I'm not going to say this is, this is bad. But I do think this is my least favorite Evil Dead movie. At least on first viewing. Yeah, I might uh, see it again just mm. so I can really focus on it. Because as we said, we saw it in a rowdy theater. Mm. Not Maybe not the ideal circumstance. I will see it again at some point. But so I reserve the right to say it's worse than I thought or better than I thought. But as it stands, I think this is a reasonably fun time at a movie theater, but not a particularly good yeah, Evil Dead movie. I feel like it's it's a B movie premise that's putting its resources in the wrong spot. Mm. Um, if you're going to make a big slick thing, you either have to leave the the mythology shallow and uh, and juice it up with some interesting style and they, yeah. they, they throw in a lot of good gore this was uh, written, a really good gore. written and directed by lee cronin who uh <laughs> co-made 50 states of fright the quibi film with Yay. Sam uh, I, I will bring up quibi whenever i can uh mm. you also did a movie yeah. a horror movie i heard was good but i didn't see called the hole in the ground yeah i didn't see the hole in the ground either yeah. uh he, he's he's no sam raimi uh who he's, he's he's juicing it up with gore but no, he's not no juicing up no with style sam raimi uh, or you do something kind of interesting with the premise. Well, yeah, uh, I think I think they tried and they just kind of didn't. Well, make no, I mean they they just redid it. It's like we have a recording, we have the book, and it invokes demons, and that's mm. all we have. Oh yeah, I guess uh, they well, just, just putting it in a new context isn't uh, enough. You want how, how about this? They they find the book, they've realized it can evoke demons, and then they get a call from the book's lawyers saying they're using it without their consent, and you know they have to get legal permission before they can uh, okay, well, that's re-invoke just, the de- something. Not, like not, that. Well, that's just a parody film. That is, I, I suppose so. But you know, do something interesting with the concept. Uh, you know. Yeah. What it 
tell us a little bit more about the book. I don't, you don't have to expand the mythology into something, you know, multi-film sprawling, but, you know, at least put an interesting idea. There's there's definitely Uh, like different places you can take. I mean, if you think about it, a lot of horror franchises, they're trying to reiterate the thing you liked about the original while introducing a new element or putting it in a new location. What if Jason goes to Manhattan or space, that kind of thing. But it's still a slasher movie where Jason kills a bunch of people. You you could also just like, it's always like how how do we isolate these people from everywhere? What if it happened in the middle of the day, in like a crowded area? Yeah. What if what if it, they did it on a museum tour? <laughs> like oh well, I wonder what this is. Oh the professor was supposed to give the lecture. He must have wanted us to play this. Click and now it's like night at the museum, but the Evil Dead, and a yeah. whole bunch of people. Like there are things you could do, to make it a little less repetitive. Uh, but then again, and, and this is something I think we sometimes lose track of as critics, because generally speaking, we try to be well-versed in the thing that we're talking about. We we can't always, but we try. Um, every movie is someone's first. I think if someone saw this movie as their first Evil Dead movie, uh-huh. I think they'd be pretty scared. I think they'd still think it was kind of neat. I would encourage them to see the other movies, uh-huh. because I think they'll be surprised at <laughs> some of the places the series went um but um i, st- I still think you probably have a good time with it if this was your introduction Maybe i don't so. i don't think this would make you oh, i don't i don't i don't see what the appeal is i think they managed to get that i just don't think they did much more than that and that's i i hope this does well enough that if we make we can make another evil dead movie sooner so that's not like 10 years again and we just feel the need to go back to the well, yeah, well and I... we can we can juice it up a smidge yeah like just do something different because there's, it's so it's so bare bones. You might as well. Right. You're not, not going to hurt anything at this point. Yeah. Anyway, we should move on. Uh, what do you want to talk about next? Uh, how about we talk about uh, Bo is Afraid? I want to talk about Bo is Afraid. Okay, I did not see Bo is Afraid. I wanted to see Bo is Afraid, but Bo is Afraid is three hours long, and I had a couple of weeks. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> and going to see Bo is Afraid was not a, a practical yeah, well. thing for me. Also, um, it, this is the the third feature film from uh, filmmaker Ari Aster, who did mm. uh, Hereditary and uh, Midsommar. So you know you're in for an opera of misery. Ari Aster, um, you know, say what you will. I thought, uh, I, I like Hereditary a lot. I like Midsommar a lot. It's actually grown on me over time. I like it more than I did the first time I saw it. Mm. I found the films interesting because in many respects they're very derivative. Like uh. Hereditary definitely has elements of... Mm. You can see a lot of Polanski in it. You can no. see a lot of Exorcist in it. Um, and Midsommar is basically it's just... Man, it's yeah. basically the Wicker Man with yeah. a slightly different slightly different aesthetic. Um, and you know what? He manages to do these very repetitive things, but he jacks up the emotional intensity so high, it almost feels like a cheap shot. It's mm. like, what did you do to make... Your chili so hot. I threw in a bunch of jalapenos. Like, mm. oh, I guess that would do it. It's not very yeah. nuanced, <laughs> but like, well, you can tell that he, uh, Ari Aster himself, is mm. dealing with some personal issues. Mm. Uh, Hereditary is clearly about his relationship with his family and how. Uh, well, it suggests that suge- anyway. yeah. I don't want to um, put words in his mouth about his family. As well, uh, Ari it Aster, feels like it. Ari Aster has actually been very open about how Midsommar is about a breakup he had and, oh, uh, and sort of how, how miserable mm. uh, 
he was and how miserable he felt he was making other people's lives. And there's a lot of just uh, outright uh, depiction of depictions of depression in his movies. Oh yeah. So he's he's remaking the Wicker Man, but he's throwing in some real uh, hard he, hard emotions and pathos. He's changing the things. context a little bit. It's yeah. less about uh, Wicker Man is very much about sort of Christian groupthink a lot. Group, yeah. Christian groupthink and the way that Christians judge other religions, but also the way that other religions judge Christianity. Uh, and so that's, it's actually a more of an intellectual film in a lot of ways. Uh, whereas Midsommar is basically like one of the ultimate shitty breakup movies. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so, but anyway, I, I, I like those movies. They're, hmm. they're definitely not a casual watch. That's yeah, for sure. I, but yeah, you know. I feel like, uh, his, his first two movies are about how, uh, the, the relationships that we establish in our lives aren't going to save us. I feel like uh, family breaks down in Hereditary. Relationships yeah, break really down bad. in Midsommar. Yeah. Uh, the only uh, uh, redemption both... for uh, for the main the Florence Pugh character in Midsommar mm-hmm. is this really oblique death cult. Well, and, I, and that's I, kind of the only place where she can find comfort after a while. And, and you know, that's kind of what hereditary is about too. In a yeah, way it's about, yeah, yeah. it's about um, religions, which probably don't want the best for us either, but it's what we fall into when family fails us or yeah, yeah. our close relationships do. Uh, they're very bitter films. Uh, very bitter films. Bo is afraid is three hours long. Uh-huh. Uh, and it is pretty much just a therapy session. It takes okay. place. Uh, and this is Ari Aster being given, Infinite resources. He's, yeah. He gets to play. Yeah. He gets to do uh, fulfill every weird college film school uh, impulse he's ever had and just throw it all into one movie. It's always interesting when a filmmaker has like a big enough debut or one or two mm. big films early in their career and all of a sudden they get to do whatever the fuck they want uh-huh. and you get to see the people who just said, I'm going to make the weirdest fucking movie I ever could mm. and how you see how that almost always backfires. It always, it always backfires, but... Uh, in terms of like financial success mm-hmm. and uh, audiences always respond very badly to these kinds of movies. I'm thinking of uh, Darren Aronofsky's Mother uh, is is another one of these movies. I would say, I'm talking about or, usually or, early crew stuff. I'm talking about Southland Tales. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I would even Richard argue uh, Steven Spielberg's 1941 is one of uh, these where it's just I'm going to put I'm going to throw every fucking thing at the wall. Mm. It's all going to be way more expensive yeah, than it needs is... to be. It's all a huge cast. And there's so much I admire about 1941. There's a lot of really good stuff in it. It's a fucking mess. Yeah, yeah. And it's just something where I am allowed to play in the most expensive sandbox, and no one is going to tell me what the rules are. Yeah. I get to decide, and I might fuck it up, and I probably will. The question is, are you going to fuck it up so bad? Mm-hmm. That they won't let you make a movie again, <laughs> and that can happen. You gotta happen. be careful. Um, you gotta be careful. I just admire when a studio... Babylon is another one of these. Babylon, definitely. Yeah, uh, like just huge. Some people really love it. Some people really hate or, or, it. It's the big fucking thing. Or even Bardo. These really self-indulgent, yeah. lo- very long, uh, very, wildly symbolic movies. Everyone gets a Heaven's Gate. Mm. And uh, <laughs> and these films always fail. Yeah. But I, I'm glad that studios will make them anyway. And yeah. I always appreciate, even if I don't like the movies, Yeah. I appreciate when a filmmaker is allowed to just sort of Go a little bit hog wild, yeah. Because money is always right. a factor. It's when you usually when a studio wants to sp- lets you spend money on something, mm-hmm. it's because they're very confident they're going to make their money back. Which means it's a genre film, or it's supposed to appeal to all quadrants, and it ends up just getting all the edges sanded off. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, when they let they let you go weird on mm-hmm. that big a scale, it's always interesting. 
It's always interesting. Yeah. Uh, you may not like it, but it's always interesting. Yeah. I like it. I like it. I like mm-hmm. Bo's Afraid. I like okay. how, how strange and miserable it is. What, what um, is the... I know it's oblique, but like, what is the story? Okay, so uh, we, we start with uh, the character Bo. He's played by Joaquin Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's talking to his therapist, who's played by the wonderful uh, character actor Stephen McKinley Henderson, okay. uh, who was in Fences and um, mm. uh, uh, Lady, oh, yeah, Lady Bird. Yeah, he's a really wonderful actor. Yeah. He was in Dune. Uh, <laughs> he was. He was in Dune. Uh, he's talking, uh, he plays his therapist. Yeah. And his ther- he's talking about his mom. And, uh, you know, my mom was always a little bit oppressive. And the therapist says right out, right out loud, do you ever wish she was dead? Okay, we know what this movie's about. Okay. It's about Bo's relationship with his mother. Got it. Uh, he lives in a city in this weird, like, near-future fantasy time where everything is just miserable. Uh, he has to sprint to his front door because there's these weird tattooed guys chasing after him. And he likes to lock himself inside. And everything, it's, like, if you remember um, some of the buildings from Candyman, mm. just, like, imagine that increased by, a, like, a factor of ten. Uh he, he goes up to his apartment and really bizarre things begin happening. His neighbor begins pounding on his wall, saying, asking for him to turn the music down. He doesn't have any music playing. Hmm. And in retaliation, his neighbor starts playing loud music for the music that he's not playing. Right. And his mother uh, phones him up on, on the phone and says, you have to come visit me. And he panics. He starts to uh, pack his bag. His uh, And then when he's on his way out, he goes in to get some dental floss, comes back out his suitcase and his apartment key has been stolen out of the door and so he calls up his mom it's like i need to stick around for a new key because i'm not leaving my, my apartment on you know, open mm-hmm. and uh and she just says i know you'll do the right thing just kind of pressuring him uh-huh. and, and he, be, he begins taking some medication he freaks out he needs water he leaves his apartment unlocked and people immediately infiltrate and just vandalize his entire apartment mm-hmm. this this is this if you, remember, if you remember, if you remember that scene in Mother, where all of the people come infiltrating into the house and breaking stuff, same kind of vibe to most it. of the movie, yeah. actually. But yeah, uh, he ends up getting hit by a car while he's naked and uh, is taken in by um, Amy Ryan and Nathan Lane, who play this suburban couple and they live in a really nice, clean house. And they look like uh, he's a surgeon; he's going to look after this guy, he's going to take care of everything. But he's constantly freaking out because he has to get home. He has to get home mm-hmm. to his mother, uh, and he gets a call. That his mother has died. Uh-huh. Uh, discovered by, like, the UPS man. He talks to a UPS oh, man over the phone. It's like, oh, well, crap. Uh, so now he's he has to go there and attend the funeral because that was one of her last wishes. And he's co- completely wrecked by guilt that he won't be able to go. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Nathan Lane and Amy Ryan aren't what they seem. And things yeah. go very, very sour for them. And their teenage daughter is this horrible monster. And they're looking after this guy who lives in a, a, a trailer just outside who starts stalking them. And he ends up running off into the woods and he falls in with a theater troupe and he goes off on this dreamscape where he manages himself in a play. And, okay, so a bunch of shit happens. A bunch of shit happens. And okay. then there's a flashback so we get to see where he is. Whereas, mm-hmm. uh, uh, all of this essentially comes down to is... His mother has been torturing him both directly and indirectly since he was a child. Uh, And how she's been sort of feeding him all of these anxieties about the role of his father. She reveals that his father died the instant he was conceived. Like (laughs) his father climaxed and then died. Uh, That's a lot of pressure. Yeah, that's been hanging over him his whole life. And Joaquin Phoenix... God bless him. He'll just dig into a, 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 freak, out, a freak out role like He'll this. do anything, man. He yeah, I mean, just... he, he won an Oscar for playing the Joker, for God's sake. Yeah. And, 
he embodies that sort of panicked guilt for three straight hours and never makes you never never makes it seem tiresome. You're always you know at a fever pitch, mostly thanks to his his performance and because Ariaster is really varying a lot of this stuff. And of mm. course it all climaxes with a big confrontation in this sort of fantasy theater where you can't be sure how much of it is real. It, uh, it sounds to me, and I, I'm sure it's different, but mm. it sounds to me like a little bit of, I'm thinking of ending things. It, it, it has, yeah. That, well, that's another one where Charlie Kaufman got, Charlie Kaufman's always sort of had leeway to play a little bit weird. Synecdoche, New York, for goodness sake. Yeah. Uh, I, I like him thinking of ending things. I know you didn't like it so oh, I much. Hated it. Yeah, uh, that was one of my favorites of the year. Um, yeah, I thought I got what it was going for. I did. Mm-hmm. I just wasn't impressed. <laughs> I thought it was actually just a very uninteresting mm-hmm. read. But, mm-hmm. um, but again, it's but yeah, it's, got, it's got that energy. It's got that. Yeah, excitement, well, you know. Uh, I'm thinking of anything has has sort of a surrealist vibe to it, where yeah. you feel like. There, there's something to decipher in something like them thinking of anything. No, Bo's afraid is uh, well, there is there, there's I like just, a, there's it's like some very easy mysteries and metaphors wrapped in not, other metaphors in that many, movie. No. Uh, <laughs> Call you hate that movie. I just don't, I'm just <laughs> unimpressed by it. I uh, find it very obvious. I I, I really dug okay. it. I, I I dug that sort of uh, scholarly vibe that he put to it. Bo is afraid. Peer review notes, but okay. Bo is afraid is isn't like it, it's not being oblique about its symbols. Every single mm. symbol sort of goes back to anxiety about family and motherhood mm. and the guilt put on you by your mother. I would be interested to know Ari Aster's relationship with his mother, mm-hmm. but I think I know what it is now. <laughs> uh, he's clearly working through a lot of shit, and yeah. uh, the way it ends is sort of this bold uh, stroke of, bold declaration of how he actually feels about his mother. Is Is it... Because the thing is, I remember when the trailer came out, everyone's like, is this another horror movie? Is it a comedy? Is it, from a perspective of just, you kind of pin it down to tell people what it is. Mm. Is it really amorphous or is it, would you say it's mostly a comedy or mostly a dark comedy or Um, mostly a drama or what what would you say? uh, If you're trying to tell people, here's here's the experience you're paying for a ticket for. uh, Surrealist horror comedy. Okay. There you go. That's as good as anything. Sum it up. It's as good as anything. Um, you can look to Ari Aster's films, and if you have a certain eye, see comedy. Mm. Uh, he there's he plays things up sort of like really big in terms of like the tragedy and the pain and the panic. Mm-hmm. But there's a weird absurd element to a lot of his films. Uh, you look at Hereditary and what happened with that telephone pole. Uh, yeah. th- there's like almost a Bugs Bunny element to to that. Uh, Midsommar has a lot of moments where they play out a little bit comedic. I mean, very darkly comedic, but yeah. kind of comedic. No, there's definitely, like, the, the, the thing with the bear. The thing, the thing that, with the bear. That, that's, or, uh, that's a little absurd. Or or the, the I'll just say, the scene with the pants, uh, yes. if, if you know what I'm talking about. I believe I do. There's kind of some weird silly things in these yeah. movies, and I think he's rolling with that bizarre sense of humor a little bit more in Bo's Afraid. You would be forgiven for laughing mm-hmm. while you're panicking, I think it's a healthy response. Uh, yeah, to to anxiety or panic, you know, laugh. Yeah. I think a lot of movies are trying to get us to go like, ah, oh shit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Th- there is a temptation, uh, or I guess there's a a, a, a risk 
yeah. in making a movie like this of repeating yourself too much because it's a long film mm-hmm. and it is coming back to common themes a lot. Yeah. About sort of... Sounds an, pretty straightforward. S- psychology premise, yeah. and, and anxiety. And it's going to have hold about Mother. I feel like Mother, probably a great short film. You think they, it just they, went on too long? I, yeah. I think it overplays its hand. I think... Mm-hmm. I. I I get it, Mother. It, it, it took me a little while to see the, the Bible metaphors in Mother. Yeah. Uh, th- there's a scene where uh, this uh, the these two characters are brought into the movie, and they're like these sort of like snippy, rich bourgeois, and they're really kind of cruel. And then they, they're taken outside, and then they come back, and the man mm. is sort of holding his side. He's like, something's happened to him. And the woman is there and she's like sort of being snippy as usual. And then there's another person there, like a third person has been brought yeah, all in. Of a sudden, it's yeah. like, oh, that's, it's Adam. It's Adam's rib. They yeah. took it out. And oh, this is a big Bible metaphor. Like it took me a yeah, second really, to get, the, yeah. get, get that kind of stuff. Yeah. I, I appreciate that movie's mm. panic attack quality. I mm. think there are moments in that movie which are as anxiety inducing as anything I've ever seen in a oh, movie. Oh, yeah, definitely. But it's also very straightforward in a lot of ways and mm. once you get it you get it you get it and, and it and, just keeps I, going but i appreciate that kind of college school well, vibe and we talked about this when we talked about the well i appreciate that darren aronofsky is one of those just big swing filmmakers mm. who just is always pushing things as far as he can go when he gets away with it it's great mm. when he does and, it it's annoying but I, yeah. he he made uh he's made several films about religion and i, yeah. I feel like when he did pie Fountain, I think, is a little less interesting, uh, but Noah's I think great. I think Noah is wonderful, and I like yeah. Mother. I like Mother a lot. You do not appreciate uh, Noah enough, man. That's yeah, over. No. That's overdue for a reappraisal. If you haven't seen Noah in a while, revisit that shit because that movie is fucking wild. <laughs> that movie is a. Yeah. They threw money at that. That is a weird fucking thing. Another good example of this, but um, mm. oh, we should move on. So, just last thoughts on Boa's Afraid. Uh, I think you'll. You will be off put by Boa's Afraid. That's okay. its function. It's, yeah. it's trying to it's kind a of feature, not gro- a bug. Yeah, gro- yeah, gross you out and terrify you, and maybe even keep you a little bit off balance and confused for a lot of it. Mm. If that's the kind of experience you enjoy, which yeah. I know some people do, I do. I yeah. like sort of being kept a little off balance, a little not just frightened in a horror movie kind of way, but frightened about real things in life. Uh, if that's the kind of fear you're looking to see in a movie, yeah, then. This this one is is a it's a bit of a hoot. Nice. Um, well, I'm going to ask you for the next film because you saw we with was one film on their list to come mm. that we both saw. The rest of it was separate, and I think you saw like one more film than I did overall. Right. So I'm just going to ask you to take the next one in a row, and it's the other big theatrical release. Tell me about Renfield, which mm. really sounds up my alley. Yeah. It sounds like the kind of thing I would think is fun. <laughs> um, stars Nicholas Holt as Dracula's. Uh, most famous sidekick, Renfield, mm. uh, who uh, was taken in by Dracula's spell and starts like eating bugs and stuff and doing his bidding in the daylight. Uh, and Nicolas Cage plays Dracula, and according to the trailer, uh, Renfield is starting to question his place in this mm. relationship and whether it's really one-sided. Yeah, um, That's a fun premise. And and it's a sequel to specifically to Todd Browning's film and, yeah. and the way Renfield was depicted in that movie. Although, by the, although Renfield died at the end of that movie um, instead of Dracula, so we'll... Did they, well, do they address that, or is that well, just Well, not what they said is, uh, Renfields was brought into Dracula's thrall in the 19... Or whenever that movie was set. It's not in the present day, I don't think. I don't it's not the 1930s. Think, it, was like the, it was like turn of the century. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dwight Fry plays uh, Renfield, and Dwight oh, Fry is amazing wonderful. Yeah, he's great. He, he also played uh, Fritz, the assistant in, in Frankenstein. Yeah, um, the, one, the one everyone thinks is Igor, but wasn't. 
Yeah, the, the one, all the future Igor characters would be modeled after Fritz from Frankenstein. In, including the character uh, who actually was Igor, played by Bela Lugosi and mm-hmm. Son of Frankenstein. Really good character, by the way, but anyway. I, I, I like Igor. Igor and, kicks and his ass. Goals. Yeah. He became the villain of the piece after a while. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, this is a sequel to Todd Browning's Dracula, and the idea is they barely survived, and Renfield was able to sort of abscond with Dracula's remains, mm-hmm. uh, stalk out into the world, find some victims, feed blood to the remains, and he kind of grows back. Okay. And then, of course, once he's grown back, he gets a little zealous, he starts eating people again, the hunters come after again, he's destroyed again, and the, the cycle <laughs> continues. And this has happened okay. now like, right. like three or four times, and Renfield's getting a little tired of it. And yeah. he doesn't like being in Dracula's thrall. He doesn't like calling this guy master. And... Uh, he uh, is especially starting to take moral exception with just feeding people to Count Dracula. A little late, but okay. Uh, a lot of this film is centered in uh, a self-help group for people who are caught in toxic relationships right. with, with lovers or family members or bosses, in, in right. Renfield's case. Renfield just happens to have a really bad boss, and that's the joke of Renfield. And it's a reasonably uh, fun... I've seen it before, but it's a yeah. reasonably funny joke. And there's a few fun premises. Uh, like, he... In, in the original Dracula, he uh, Renfield eats bugs. Mm. And it's sort of like this pale imitation of what Dracula is doing. Dracula yeah. is drinking human blood yeah. and taking life. Renfield essence. doesn't get to eat people. Yeah, he, he, he gets, he gets uh, oh, I can eat bugs and get their power, like little tiny bits of power. Because yeah. yeah, Renfield's supposed to be kind of a pathetic character. Yeah. Uh, in this movie, they changed that premise a little bit. He eats bugs and he has super vampire powers for like five minutes. He'll, he'll eat okay. a bug and he can like do backflips and punch uh, people's faces off. and yeah, kind of fun. Kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, they've set up shop in New Orleans where the movie's set, mm. and, uh, he attracts the attention of a local cop, and that's Aquafina. Okay. And so she's on the trail, and, of course, uh, he sees that Aquafina is actually one of the few honest cops left, and they begin having a bit of a flirtation. Uh, and that makes him realize, I can be human again. I don't want to be Dracula's thrall. Mm. Nicolas Cage plays Dracula, and he is constantly taunting him and trying to get him back in, the, in that horrible boss kind of way. Yeah. You're nothing without me. Yes, master, I'm nothing without you. <laughs> uh, Renfield is played by Nicholas Holt, and Nicholas Holt great. is an excellent actor. He's so good. Uh, he, uh, he, he's another one of those actors who has like movie star good looks. He's very handsome. But he is clearly trying to play like the weirdest uh, character roles that he possibly can. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen the great. Uh, I heard that's I, funny, but I've heard he's yeah. really, really good in that one. Uh, I love that uh, when they like when they did like a Mad Max movie, he played like the weird cult underling who yeah. looks like crap and believes horrible <laughs> things and says stupid shit. Uh-huh. Like he's, I think I really do. I saw this. I think I said this when the menu came out. Mm. I think Nicholas Holt is like trying to be this generation's Peter Lorre. Yeah, and that's a yeah. great thing to be. We always need a Peter Lorre. Mm. We always need a really interesting creep in a well, movie. And, and I appreciate when uh, sort of people there who they're trying to pigeonhole as like matinee idols yeah. are clearly trying to break out of that. Fight you saw, you saw something like uh, like Brad Pitt in Twelve Monkeys, for yeah. instance. Uh, Johnny Depp in most of the films he made. Yeah, he, uh, he yeah. actively fought against it. Yeah. And Nicholas Holt, he was in the X Men movies. That's true, but he, yeah. but he played uh, a blue fur beast monster. But and yet a very boring blue fur beast monster. Yeah. It's fine. He was good at it. Mm-hmm. But like, but then you'll see him in something genuinely weird, like The Favorite, and you mm-hmm. realize this is what he likes to do. No, it's, it's the, he's not in The Favorite. He's in The Great. <laughs> He's in the favorite. He's in the favorite. Why not? I don't think so. I thought he was Emma, Tom, uh, Emma Stone's like boyfriend. I'm gonna look it up. Oh yeah, maybe he was. I'm gonna um, check. I'm, yeah. I'm gonna double check. 
Uh, hold on, Nicholas Holt. But I, he's he he's is, my favorite. Okay, he's he's the one selling this movie. Yeah, uh, Nicholas Holt is. Uh, the gag, not really good enough for a whole movie. It's it's actually kind of light. This yeah. movie, it's very trifling. I mean, it's in and out in like ninety minutes. It's which a good all it needs pitch. To be. The trick is yeah. how do you turn that pitch into something more than? Yeah, I because I the like... concept is good, but is is the concept all you got, or is that the mm. basis? For a bigger well, story. Well, there's... A, they eventually expand it where uh, Dracula realizes that Renfield is drifting away and uh, he's uh, attracted the ire of the local mob. So mm. there's gangsters after him. So there's an element of that movie, Innocent Blood, uh, the John Landis film, uh, in, in there where uh, it's <sighs> vampires versus gangsters and what happens yeah. when the vampires and the gangsters try to team up. If you've never seen Innocent Blood, mm. uh, audience... If you've never seen Innocent Blood, stop what you're doing. <laughs> I know it's directed by John Landis. I know he's. I know. He, I know. But like, it's so fucking good. Anne Perelaud from the original La Femme Nikita plays mm. a French vampire in New York City, and her whole thing is she's 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 in the mood for Italian, so she starts eating a whole bunch of gangsters played by people like Chaz Palminteri and mm. Robert Loggia, and she makes them look and like Don mo- Rickles. And Don Rickles <laughs> plays their lawyer, and like she she decides to make them all look like mob hits. So uh, Anthony LaPaglia, great actor, uh, who is undercover uh, as a cop with the mob, uh, and his boss, Angela Bassett, before she was big, uh, they end up getting caught up in this thing where Anne Perilod bites mob boss Robert Loggia, but she isn't able to finish the job. And now Robert Loggia realizes he's a vampire, and he's turning all of his underlings into vampires, and they've got to stop before the mob takes over. It's fucking cool. <laughs> it's it's yeah. really... And the scene... There's one scene... I won't tell you who it is. There's one scene where a vampire gets killed by sunlight in mm-hmm. that movie that, for me, is the gold standard of vampires it's, getting killed by sunlight. It's really wonderful special it's effects. great in that visual sequence, effects. Yeah. In that. That's a fucking cool movie. The, the movie uh, so, yeah, there's, like, yeah. But the 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 gang leader isn't Robert Loja in this one. It's Shori Agdajlu, uh, and okay. I, I love so, Shori Agdajlu. I, I want I want her the, to narrate my life. I wouldn't have predicted, but yeah. that's cool. I love Shori Agdajlu. I, I would well. love to see her play Queen Doris in a remake of Forbidden Zone. Nice. Uh, like she has that kind of campy energy in this movie. Nice. Uh, the movie itself doesn't have enough campy energy. It's it's you know this horror comedy and they, and it plays fair with the horror. There's some you know mm-hmm. good gore moments. People get ripped to shreds. Uh, I I wanted like something a little bit a little bit dirtier, I guess. Yeah. Not in terms of like sex. I mean, in terms of like getting people splattered a little bit, trying to yeah. make it a, a little bit grosser. Yeah. It could have used some of that, that evil dead energy well, uh, in terms in its, in its approach to its violence, because that would have ele- sort of stood in juxtaposition to the lightweight comedy that would have been yeah. coming out on the other end. So the, the gore is fine. It could have been a lot worse. Yeah. Uh, and, and and by worse, I mean better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It could have been a lot gory. Yeah. I, I don't know. You could also have just gone pure fun comedy. The other movie I was thinking about when I saw the trailer for this mm. is a movie that nobody saw. It is so good. Amy Heckerling's Vamps. Uh, yeah, I didn't. I didn't see that one. I, I was I was hanging out with my partner one day, and the, uh, they were just like, um, I was like, "What do you want to watch today?" And they're like, I, "I wish there was something like Clueless, but with vampires." And I was like, "The director of Clueless literally made a horror comedy with Alicia Silverstone in 2012, and nobody saw it, and it's really good." Alicia Silverstone and Kristen Ritter play vampires in modern day New York City, who's uh, who are sired by Sigourney Weaver. Mm. and Sigourney Weaver just, like, refuses to, like, live in the modern day and understand that, like, you have to kind of, like, uh, 
not just go out and kill a whole bunch of fucking people because like there's like cameras and law enforcement and everything now and it's all about Kristen Ritter and Alicia Silverstone trying to find a way to be modern people mm. in a community where everyone is very very old like there's a whole subplot that's about like them trying to get all the older vampires to figure out how to handle their taxes <laughs> because they've never had to do that before mm. and now it's like the I know the IRS will get you <laughs> you got to actually do it um Dan Stevens is oh, in it. Oh, yay, okay. Yeah, there's this whole bit where Kristen Ritter is like meets this hunky guy and he's great and she dates him and it turns out uh, he's a uh, he's a Van Helsing. Oh, no! And the, and the Van Helsing, who's like the vampire hunter in this one, is played by Wallace Shawn and it's oh, cool. great. <laughs> it's so fun. It's really funny. Mm-hmm. Please see it. It's great. I rarely get an opportunity to talk about it. Uh, so Renfield just kind of eh. Uh, kind of eh, yeah. Okay, that's a shame. Uh, speaking of eh, mm-hmm. I want to talk about Ghosted. So, um, you, you were out once and we had, uh, the, the, uh, wonderful Lon Harris step Ah, in for you. Uh, and, uh, Lon Harris has been responsible for trying to, uh, popularize the term, popularize the term red notice in reference to the film red notice as a genre of films. It is. And I agree. Uh, And uh, a red notice, a red notice film Mm -hmm is a very specific type of bland Hollywood blockbuster that has all of the trappings of something that should be exciting and is the exact opposite. Yeah, it's, it's got it's, it's got attractive, famous people. Mm, uh, really recognize, big, recognizable big stars. Big, recognizable stars. Big budgets. Uh, they, there's a lot of quips, but no actual jokes. It's like not a comedy film. Mm. Like It's going yeah. for humor, but it's clearly not yeah. a comedy film. It's got a lot of action sequences, but no actual major thought or care has gone into any of them. Uh, it's got a lot of set pieces, but what happens in those set pieces is completely irrelevant. Um, it's a movie that gives you the impression of having watched a good film without ever actually giving you a good film. And yeah. boy is ghosted one of those. Okay. Uh, it's a, because that, it, it, it looks like a red notice. No, no, it's, it's Lon Harris has said it was a red notice. No, I, he, and I agree with him. If I hadn't heard him say that, I would have said it myself. Right. It's totally a red notice. Uh, it comes from a very good director, Dexter Fletcher, uh, who had previously done rocket man, that excellent, uh, Elton right. John, uh, biopic. Um, I, I rather like him. I think he's very, very talented. Phoning it the fuck in. Uh, it stars Anna de Armas uh, as a woman who uh, it, it, you're not supposed to know, like in the movie, but the trailer gives it away immediately. So who cares? Mm. Uh, she's a spy, okay. she's a super spy, uh, and she meets while she's like between super spy gigs, and she's having a bit of a sort of a crisis. Uh, where she realizes that although she does a lot of cool super spy stuff, she doesn't have a life. She doesn't have a home that she recognizes as anything other than a place that her stuff is. She doesn't even have a plant. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's just feeling very lonely and isolated and doesn't know what to do with herself. And she ends up deciding, okay, I'm going to buy a plant. And so she ends up going to a farmer's market where she runs into Chris Evans. Chris Evans is one of the guys, he like he works at a farm, his dad's farm. Uh, and they have kind of a meet cute sort of where there's a lot of bickering, but okay. Uh, and then they spend like one really good date together where they really, really like each other a lot. And then the next day they, they, they part ways. Mm. 
Uh, and Chris Evans is told by everyone around him that he's like a lovable loser, but he's like really needy and gets really clingy. Uh-huh. And he's been like texting her this whole time and she hasn't gotten back to him. And he's starting to think he's been ghosted. And due to machinations, which are so stupid, we're not even going to get into them here. <laughs> uh, she has on her his asthma inhaler. Okay. Which they bring up as a huge plot point early on. Oh, like he if he exerts himself a lot, he has, he has asthma. He needs an asthma inhaler. Throughout the rest of the movie, he will be doing tons of action shit, and it will never come up. He'll, he'll never... He'll never need, need an asthma inhaler. Yeah. Pure laziness. It's just there to get him to a certain geographic location. But because he loses stuff constantly, he has put a lot of like GPS devices on everything he owns. So right. he f- follows the GPS device he thinks is going to be a big romantic gesture. He follows her to Europe. Where he is immediately abducted by evil spies. Oh, God. And they think he's the super spy and she's the girlfriend. Uh-huh. And she has to rescue him because now everyone, every bad guy in the world thinks he has, like, the secret codes to, like, the evil device that's going to blow up everything. So they have to run around. There's a whole bunch of cameos. Some are actually funny. There's a bunch of cameos? There's, like, there's a, there's a, there's a bit in the middle where, uh... Every, like, bounty hunter in the world is after them. And we see a whole bunch of bounty hunters in a row, and they're all famous. Okay. And that joke kind of works just because of the way it's structured. Mm. Not so much that, like, oh, it's that guy. But, like, because of the way that the gag builds, that's actually... That's probably the funniest joke in the movie. Okay. Um, But, yeah, there's a bunch of car chases, and they shoot a lot of people... And they get mad at each other a lot. And she's like, you're super clingy. You sent me so many texts. And he's like, yeah, but you kill a lot of people. And she's just like, that's different. And then they, and then they, and then they yell so some is, more. And, and I mean, is, is it like, at least, does it have slick action? No. Uh, is, is there an interesting, like, plot in, it has, inside all of it that? It has, no. It has perfunctory action. Okay. Where the action is technically fine. <laughs> Bless you. Bless you again. Excuse me. Uh, it, the action is technically fine, but like we would, we reviewed on um, what was that spy show we reviewed on Cancel Too Soon? It was like Whiskey Tango. Oh, a Whiskey Cavalier. Whiskey Cavalier. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think it was that. Um, that that was a network TV show. The action sequences were just as good. Oh, Maybe gosh, a little okay. bit more expensive here, but like it's just as good. The action, just these sort of like, oh, that's a car chase. Oh, they shot some people there. It's kind of a fun bit at the end with like a, a rotating restaurant mm-hmm. that like starts spinning out of control. That one I haven't seen before. I'll give oh, you yeah. that. Um, but that's about it when it comes to like cleverness. But basically, yeah, it's uh, here are two attractive people uh, yelling at each other um, while they do things that don't really matter. And at the end of the movie, they'll probably end up together. And that's the film. Uh, we. It's just fucking. It's 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 the idea for a movie writ large as an actual movie. And I'm gonna say this right now. The script is the kind of script that would get you like an A in a screenwriting class because it shows you understand structure. Okay. Like you fucked up the setup with that asthma inhaler. Like that clearly was supposed to go somewhere later and you never did it. But uh-huh. for the most part. Everything that's set up in the beginning is important later. It all, you know, it's it's structured fine. Mm. The high concept is basically the movie Night and Day, which is better than this, but, like, it's fine. Um, the problem of the movie, I think the real reason why the movie doesn't even work really on its own merits and it just comes across just totally bland uh-huh. uh, is 
Chris Evans. Well, specifically, I, I, I Chris was going to ask Chris because Chris Evans is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find him terribly uninteresting as a performer. Okay, uh, I've, he was in a film called Puncture where he played a lawyer. Uh, a, his... Yeah, like a like a like a shitty uh, self lawyer who only cared about his own self interest, mm-hmm. but he found one cause he believed in. And yeah, and like, like, like pushed a, him. He w- he was an addict, and he kind of was kind yeah. of a, a little bit of a scumbag. And I think he yeah. was good in that. I think he was yeah. really good in the, the movie's movie. Just okay, but he's good in that. Yeah. I think he was really good in the movie Knives Out as well, where he's yeah. also kind of a scoundrel character. Yeah. When he gets uh, to play someone fun, mm-hmm. like he's, you know, like I think his best action movie role, even though, like I actually really like him as Cats America. I thought he was good casting, but like mm-hmm. my favorite action movie role with Chris uh, Evans was The Losers, where he played the funny guy. Yeah, that, he was really he, fun. I feel like he he's better as maybe like a sidekick character. They they keep on trying to make him this leading yeah. man, and he's just terrifically untextured as a, uh, as a performer. I haven't yeah. seen a lot of range from him. And I see him in the lead of, like, a romantic comedy like this, mm-hmm. and he vanishes before I've even seen the movie. Here, here's here's the thing with this movie, because the whole idea of this movie, really, on, like, a structural screenwriting, here's the pitch level, mm-hmm. uh, is what if the dorky guy from, like, a Seth Rogen romantic comedy... Uh-huh. ...fell in love with a super spy and wound up in the wrong genre by accident? That's night and day. That's basically about, night yeah. and day. It's gender swapped in that one. It's Cameron mm-hmm. Diaz getting dragged along by Tom Cruise. That movie is charming as fuck. By the way, it, it did yeah, not do right. well. I like that movie a lot. Right. I just, I'm, I'm just gonna say. It. Um, but regardless, yeah, it's Dweeb gets pulled along to Big Adventure, and they're totally out of place the entire time. Uh, who you cast in a role like that matters. Mm-hmm. Because you either need someone who has no baggage and we can just accept them at face value, or because the movie is so perfunctory, the baggage is going to work for them. So if you get someone like, I don't know, Jay Baruchel, okay. you know, they're going to bring Jay Baruchel vibes. Jay Baruchel doesn't really feel like the lead in a spy movie. So it's really going to help. Chris Evans is the lead in big blockbuster action movies. Mm. We're not looking at Chris Evans in these action situations and thinking to ourselves, oh, Chris Evans is so out of his element. Mm. We're waiting for Chris Evans to get his shit together and like be the Chris Evans we know he'll be at the end of the movie when he's like punching bad guys. Yeah. And like feeling like he's he's on top of this shit. So the entire fundamental premise falls flat immediately. Jeez. He's not playing because everyone keeps telling, I've talked to this before, like this kind of like, because uh, uh, Kenny J.D. was talking about this, cinematic gaslighting. When the movie keeps saying, like literally in dialogue, hmm. what's happening, but there's no actual evidence on screen of it. Like when people saying, oh, we're falling in love, but there's no chemistry yeah, between the actors. That's something you have to kind of take for granted in a lot of romantic comedies. Yeah, uh, the... but like it's, it's also unforgivable when it completely falls apart. Like hmm. it just becomes cognitive dissonance. I, not, I don't see what you're telling me is on screen. So I don't like it. Yeah. Everyone keeps telling him, oh, you're such a, you're such a loser. And like, people don't like being, people don't like being in a relationship with you. It's Chris Evans. He hasn't even like stopped working out for this. Like he's a massive (laughs) hunk and he doesn't, he's not playing the character. He's not like playing like a character either. He's not like, he's playing the character in a rom-com who's the cool, hunky, small-town guy who helps melt the icy heart of, like, the busy business person who only mm. does business. 
Yeah. All right. And that's not that far removed from generic action movie hero because they're still confident and handsome and likable. He needed to be the guy who has is totally out of his element even in the rom-com. Mm-hmm. He needed to be the guy who is just, oh my God, I can't believe I've got the date with the most popular girl in school. I'm never that guy. And that's what the whole movie relies on. And casting Chris Evans just from the jump doesn't do it. And Chris Evans doesn't understand that he's been miscast. And he's not playing it up. Hmm. And it's just egregious. And Adair Mas is fine. Nothing she does <laughs> Nothing she does hurts the movie or really helps it in any way. She's just She does what she has to do. She's fine. Adrian Brody plays the bad guy. He's fine. I like Adrian Brody. I like Adrian Brody. He's fine. Chris Evans is just fundamentally in the wrong movie. And if they'd gotten someone else, or they cast Jay Baruchel or Seth Rogen in this, it probably would have worked a little better. Would it have been good? No. But it probably would have been average instead of bad. Okay. And I would have taken it. Because <laughs> this, yeah. is this isn't the fun bad. This isn't the bad like, oh, they made so many weird choices. Like, no, they made very generic choices. Ugh. And it doesn't even work on that level. And it's just, boy, just a whole lot of nothing. And I don't want to talk about it anymore. Uh, <laughs> okay. Tell me about tell me about Guy Ritchie's The Covenant while we're talking about action movies. Stuff. All right. Um, Guy Ritchie's The Covenant uh, is... Uh, they say at the beginning it's inspired by true events, but these aren't real people. As uh, it, it kind of hoodwinks you a little bit. Um, every movie's inspired by true events because mm-hmm. like once there were some guys... Uh, this takes place in the mid-2000s, uh, in the middle of that uh, wonderful quagmire that we were involved in in Afghanistan. Oh, yeah, that, remember you know that, that? Remember that one that lasted for 20 years, and we decided just, you know what, can we just end it? Yeah. And then Joe Biden said, yeah. And then the, the Taliban immediately took over. So, yeah, this was just a, a, a big old quagmire. It wasn't going to be one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were a lot of untoward things that were going on about this conflict. Uh, one of those things that this movie is about is that uh, the American armed forces hired locals to be interpreters. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, that nobody in the American military spoke any of the, the native languages. So they just said, Hey, we need some interpreters. And uh, the idea was these interpreters would be hired by the American military. And in exchange, they would receive exit visas. Mm. I guess what the American military didn't give out. Yeah, that fucking uh, sucks. Yeah, they just kind of abandoned those people. It's like, yeah, we'll yeah. give you military visas. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, not really. Yeah, and all the uh, people who were basically working with the invading forces are trapped in a country run by people who are mad at them for that. Yeah. It sucks. We really, um, we fucking let the fucking world down, man. Uh, this movie has no interest in litigating any of that. Fuck me. Uh, it, it doesn't talk about such the, a big topic. The, the function of the conflict, how it's been going on, its psychological effects on anybody. This is about its action. And, uh, and more specifically, because this is a Guy Ritchie film, it's about the relationships between really macho dudes. The um, majority of his films. Yeah. He's really interested as a filmmaker in the relationship, uh, a certain kind of, very aggressively masculine relationship uh, between two straight men. In Sherlock yeah. Holmes, he toyed with the queerness a little bit. A little bit. Uh, especially in that second one when, like, fans sort of said, this is some queer relationship, mm-hmm. and he's like, 
having them like lay down and yeah. next to each other with their clothes off. There's, and, there's an interesting uh, bit in Rock and Rolla. You ever see Rock and Rolla? Well, and there's an actual queer character. There's an actual queer Rolla. character yeah. in Rock and Rolla, and Gerard Butler actually has some bits where he actually questions his sexuality mm-hmm. in that one. I think that's. It's not a great movie, but at the very no, least, it's, it's him not being well, purely, you know. Yeah, and um, yeah. same with uh, the Man from Uncle. That's another guy Richie film. Yeah, that's a lot of um, a lot of queer vibes in that. Yeah. Uh, th- this, but the idea of uh, the way straight men get along, yeah. and how there is a, an element of homoeroticism in that relationship, but more than anything, it's about a mutual respect for their capacity for violence. There's it, a lot of violence in his. It movies. feels like it feels like he likes John Woo's themes, but he's not John Woo. Yeah, he doesn't do what John Woo does. He's he's. It's interesting. One of the things I like about Guy Guy Ritchie, and even though I think um, there's definitely movies he's done where he's abandoned this and gone like very mainstream, like we did that Disney version of Aladdin. Which, yeah, he's barely in that. Like, movie, yeah, you yeah. seriously, anyone could have directed that movie if you asked. If you saw that movie and you didn't know who directed it, and I asked you who directed it, you would get fifty guesses in before it even occurred to you to even. Guess Guy Ritchie. Yeah. It's just not his movie at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, he worked for hire. Fine. Good for him. He made a lot of money. Whatever. Um, but I always appreciated about Guy Ritchie his desire to make everything more complicated than it needs to be. Because <laughs> he's always got tons of characters, usually. There's a lot of like cross-parallel action that we're cutting between multiple scenes simultaneously in very playful ways. God, his first big movie, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, was like all mm. that. It was just yeah. a whole bunch of interconnected uh, crime stories going Bare, on the same place. Barely follow it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you know what? It's a hoot. I like that movie a lot. Um, and he's remade that movie basically many times. Mm. That's what Snatch is. That's what Rock and Roll is. There, there, there's differences, but not really. I, I That's what the gentleman is. I didn't see um what was it, Wrath of Man. I didn't see I didn't that. see that. I, I haven't seen Wrath of Man and I haven't seen that spy movie he did with Josh Hartnett earlier this year. He didn't mm-hmm. had a movie come out last month. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's just cranking them out. And, yeah. and, and you know, good. Keep hey, on working. Whatever, but, uh, man, it's fine. Uh, but in this movie, uh Jake Gyllenhaal mm. plays uh, the American soldier. So they, John Kinley is the character's name. Okay. And he needs an interpreter and he uh Lands upon a, a, a fellow named Ahmed, who's played by uh, the Danish actor Dar Salim, and he's very good. Okay. And while they're uh, investigating uh, w- the lo- possible locations of like a Taliban bomb making uh, facility, mm-hmm. they they get ambushed, and yeah. uh, they everybody gets shot. They run into the hills, and uh, there's a big long sequence where they're essentially just lost in enemy territory. There's sort of so uh, the lone survivor. Kind yeah, of so, yeah. yeah. And uh, and then Jake Gyllenhaal gets. Sh- he gets shot and uh, nearly killed, and it's up to Dar Salim to uh, essentially drag his body to safety. Okay. And there's there's this like really harrowing, almost like Fitzcarraldo like sequence where he has to push this cart with Jake Gyllenhaal's body on it up a hill to get him to safety. That sounds and, uh, that sounds dramatic. Yeah, and uh, he ends up, and they murder thousands of people. Okay. And uh, they end up. Uh, Making it to safety, and Jake Gyllenhaal is found, but he spends so much time recovering in the hospital. He's you know in a coma for a little bit, and then he goes back to the United States, and he realizes that his interpreter Ahmed is back in Afghanistan. Mm. And so the second half of the movie is him going back to Afghanistan to find him and rescue him in exchange. Okay. Um, like I said, if there was any kind of talk about the function of the war, the purpose of it. Uh, what it did to the soldiers, or mm. e- even that it saw the conflict itself as generally bad, I 
I think there would be a little bit more texture to this movie, but Guy Ritchie doesn't have any of that. The heroes, mm. uh, the, the soldiers are all heroes. It's just, it's just a backdrop the, to a tale of heroism. Yeah, this yeah. this tale of there's no there's no context, there's mm. no significance to the actual events themselves. Exactly. It's just it's war, and we did cool things during war. Yeah. The problem is this is like very recent memory. Yeah. Uh, this is a very better. recent history. We know the details of this war. It would be yeah. nice if we had any kind of litigation. Instead, it was a very shallow film that uh, Guy Ritchie is trying to hang his usual uh, machismo fetish onto. Well, I'm going to ask you a question because we had a wave, I think mm. especially in the 2010s, of movies often released in or around January, mm. which were very raw-raw pro-military, yeah, for the, better the, and worse. Your Act of Valors, your Act Lone of Valor, Survivors. Yeah. I said Lone Survivor, uh, what was that, like 40 Strong or something like that? 13 Chris, Strong. 13 yeah. Strong with Chris, Evan, uh, Chris Hemsworth, sorry. Yeah. They all, they all kind of gel yeah. together was it after a while. 13 stars number strong. It was, no, it was, it was something strong. It was 13 hours was the Michael Bay movie yeah. about ben, about the siege of Benghazi. Yeah. But 12, uh, 12 strong. It was 12 strong. Okay, so close. Um, those movies were not largely... Your American Sniper as well. Uh, those movies were not largely very critical of the war. Mm. They were, But they were incredible. The whole ethos was that they were incredibly supportive of the troops. Yeah. And it felt like they were being made not so much for the actual troops to watch, but for people who have family overseas or friends overseas to watch and feel good about them. Yeah. To see, even though there's all these horrible criticisms of the... Warranted, but all of these criticisms of all this unpleasantness, all the cynicism about everything overseas, they're still our friends and our family and they are over there and they are risking their lives and it's really dangerous and a lot of them aren't coming back uh and there was a niche again for better or worse that was basically just we're gonna make stories that are about how heroic those troops are Mm. and we're really gonna gloss over any of the unpleasantness about the actual events themselves yeah well is that this movie is this one of those like hey yay for soldiers you know it has it has that vibe to it and and it's and it's odd because guy Ritchie is is not an american filmmaker he's british but uh the idea that these films that sort of uh, uh chalk up the heroism of the soldiers it's not the vaunting of the soldiers that I object to. Sure. It's the the underlying notion of a lot of these movies that war is actually something that's just sort of natural and inevitable. Mm-hmm. And the soldiers are there to do to support that thing. Support yeah. the, the phenomenon we, of war. We don't need to consider mm. why. Yeah. And the, we just and need the, to consider that. The soldiers are rarely in a position where they consider why. There, there are mm. films that do that. There's a film called Stop Loss, yeah. uh, which is about the damage that war did to the soldiers. Uh, the Messenger is The Messenger is another That's one. That's a really good one. Yeah. Uh, one I love, The Hurt Locker, sure. uh, one best picture, uh, is about sort of mm-hmm. the, the damage that war is doing to the soldiers, and it actually yeah. is litigating the war. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's even films about sort of how pacifism can actually fit into the world. A Hidden Life is a film I really, really love. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it's World War II movie, not, yeah, not a less, film, but yeah. A less, so, less, less so Hacksaw Ridge, um, yeah. which which tries to be about wa- uh, pacifism have, and then isn't. Well, it, it uh, wants to have its cake and eat it, too. It wants yeah. to say the violence is bad, and now look at how awesome all this violence is. And the violence is, is the like, end. really dynamically filmed and, like, yeah. super exciting. Totally hypocritical. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is another one of those films that yeah. is uh, putting the soldier above any kind of politic. 
and uh, on that uh, level, could it be enjoyed uh, if that's your jam? Mm. Uh, I mean, the action is plenty slick. It's yeah. really easy to follow in terms of like Guy Ritchie movies who tends to like make things too complicated. This is maybe one of his simplest okay. where it's really straightforward with one of these two characters for most of the movie. Uh, and yeah, in its simplicity, it's probably going to gonna hit all the notes it's trying to. I just wish it were trying to hit more notes. Bummer. All right, well, let's move on. Uh, let's talk about, uh, let's let's mix it up with a comedy. Something light. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Hunchback of Notre Dame <laughs> is famously very light. Um, it's been turned into plenty of comedies. It has past, been turned. But... There've been a lot of movies that have taken the Hunchback of Notre Dame is a very iconic novel. Uh, it has been turned into a variety of movies from very straightforward adaptations, starring uh, like I think Charles Lawton played Charles Lawton in, in the thirties. Yeah, know. played played Quasimodo. Um, there was a Disney animated movie, which there are parts of that movie that are amazing and parts of it that are just totally the, off. The music is great in that music, movie. The animation yeah. is gorgeous. Yeah. Um, it's, it's off base from the start, though, because yeah. they, yeah. you can tell they were going for like a Broadway vibe with that one because yeah. Beauty and the Beast was a big hit on Broadway when it was being made. And, yeah. Uh, but then they tried to fit in some of that Disney stuff, like the cute animal sidekicks. Well, like, that does no talking, place. And, yeah. Well, I, I, talking I can, gargoyle statues. I can work that. with the talking gargoyle statues as just sort of quasi. is very lonely. Or if they were like kind you of know? scary or strange in a way, yeah. but they're cute in that movie. The, the thing that, there are two things that piss me off in that movie. One is, not the gargoyles themselves. I can li- I can work with the gargoyles existing in the narrative. I, I can live with it. There's a scene in the middle of the movie where everything is getting really intense because the drama is kicking up. Uh, and if you've ever read the book or if you've seen one of the more straightforward adaptations of it, uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame is about uh, a uh, person with a hunched back mm-hmm. uh, who uh, was abandoned uh, in a church and raised by the church in a very oppressive environment. And they live a very solitary, secretive existence. And what they do is they ring the bells. And it's uh, and, and, and yeah. in the in the original novel, he's a very bitter character. Yeah, uh, in in uh, he becomes like sort of tragic in a lot of the film adaptations. Yeah, much more um, much more martyr like in a lot of mm-hmm. the movies. Um, and uh, he falls in love with uh, a woman who herself is being oppressed by the church, but uh, the uh, minister, I think, who is uh, mm-hmm. raising Quasimodo, uh, finds himself very lustfully attracted to her and that sets a whole path of uh, events, a whole bunch of events and emotions that ends very tragically. Um, the Disney movie, just when things are getting intense, does, does a huge Hakuna Matata cheer up Quasimodo song, <laughs> yeah. which is just totally tonally off. Mm. And also, because it's a Disney movie, they give it a, a mega happy ending. Yeah. Uh, and that's, I get that you're a Disney movie and you probably can't just end it the way the book ends, which raises the question of maybe you, you wanted to the one you want to maybe you should have adapted to. something else, or at the very least found like a better sweet spot at that end. But mostly, it's a pretty good movie. There was also a movie I saw as a kid. It used to be on cable a lot. It was called Big Man on Campus, and it was about the uh, the Quasimodo character who like lived in the tower at a big college. Well, it was it was Notre Dame University? Yeah, in that one. yeah, yeah, and. Um, yeah, he he's he's discovered, and there's like, oh my god, he was like uh, raised in such a strange way, and we're gonna like give him a real life, and he ends up going to college and being really good at college, and haven't seen that one in a while. I have no idea how that shit <laughs> aged. I only have a few distinct memories of it. Um, but uh, it's been done a variety of times, and 
Yeah, now we get the comedy parody version from the folks at Broken Lizard. Yeah, who haven't made a movie in a little bit? Um, yeah, it's been a hot minute. I think I've only done one since Super Troopers 2. I mean, Super Troopers 2, that was about five years ago. Yeah. Um, and that was them, that was like a Kickstarter-backed film that I don't think, like, their Super hearts Troopers, were really in it. The, the, uh, the, the big breakout film from Broken Lizard was Super Troopers, which, like, played yeah. at Sundance, and it was, like... A surprisingly good indie mm. comedy about a group of highway patrolmen who are massive dorks who like pulling mm. pranks on everybody. That yeah, they very pull very over. national lampoonish. Very uh, national. That first movie, you know what? Pretty fucking funny. Yeah, d- dumb. Very dumb. And uh, you know, very very much designed to appeal to the stoner crowd. Yeah, uh, but it does. Yeah, um, <laughs> there's a lot of funny yeah, jokes in that movie. The the opening sequence alone is wonderful. Very classic. Um, same same with Super Troopers too. I've, yeah, they did a, a send up of. Uh, slasher movies called Club Dread, mm-hmm. which is pretty good. I wish uh, I like. I don't like that. It, movie I think it's too much. long, but uh, yeah. yeah, it's Bill I, Paxton I is in that movie, mm. and Bill Paxton's having the time of his life, and I think he saves a lot of it. Mm. There's one bit in that movie that I just thought was a fun idea. Uh, it was a hedge maze that recreated the the map from Pac Man, <laughs> and the whole idea is you're being chased around a maze mm. by a bunch of sexy people. Mm. And they're the ghosts. And if you, but like in all the corners, if you find like a margarita uh-huh. and you chug the margarita, all the sexy people have to run from you. Yeah. And I always thought like, that is some kind of innocently spring <laughs> kind of break raunchy, kind of yeah, fun. Yeah. Like I can actually, that's actually kind of like a fun idea. Mm-hmm. Um, if, you're, if you're doing the right spirit. I just don't think it's funny. I just don't well, think he, the movie didn't make me laugh. Yeah, uh, you know? they, they also did uh, Beer Fest. That that was a pretty fun one. Um, uh, they did there's one... one joke in Beer Fest. It's one of the funniest jokes in any movie. Hmm. Where uh, the guy, uh, the guy, one of the characters hmm. dies. Oh, and he's replaced by the same actor. Yeah, yeah. I, I won't hmm. spoil exactly how it happens for you, but that's no. a very funny joke. So, um, Broken Lizard. Uh, the, their names are Steve Lemmy, hmm. uh, Jay Chandrasekhar, uh, Paul Soter, Eric Stolansky. And uh, Kevin Heffernan. Yeah. Uh, and for whatever reason, they work a lot with Brian Cox. Yeah. And Bri- yeah. I, just, I don't know why. It's got it good Bri- with Brian Cox. Uh, he, he narrates here, here, this Here's movie. what I'll say about Broken Lizard. Um, yeah. That first movie, Super Troopers, legit hilarious. Pretty fucking funny from top to bottom. Uh, all the other movies they've done since then, uh, Club Dread, Beer Fest, uh, The Slime and Salmon, which we didn't mention. I, I didn't like, I like that, that one. one. Uh, and Super Troopers 2, more than anything, they're kind of affable. Mm. These are like stoner guys who are having fun and as they've gone on they've gone from like that national that raunchy national lampoon vibe mm. to something a lot more mel brooks facing and sid caesar like where they're clearly trying to do like borscht belt comedy i think that's what they're doing with this movie especially this yeah. movie uh with quasi they're they're doing the send-up of uh hunchback of notre dame mm-hmm. and they're They've clearly seen like the Carry On movies mm-hmm. and History of the World Part One, yeah, and you know Monty Python and the Holy Grail, all these like sort of period slapstick movies, and yeah. they're doing their version of that. Yeah, the problem is they're all in their fifties now. Yeah. They don't have maybe the same interest they once did in uh, that, like really pushing the envelope in terms of raunchiness. Mm-hmm. So all they have left is sort of this like affable borscht belt vibe, yeah. which can be pleasant to watch, but it's not going to make you laugh a lot. Well, and here's the thing about Broken Lizard, because, mm. again, I think Super Troopers is their best movie because it's just the most consistently funny. Mm. Um, beyond that, even though I think every single one of their other movies that I've seen, uh, I guess maybe not Club Drive, but I think Super Troopers 2 and Beer Fest, uh, there are super funny sequences in those movies. Yeah. And everything around those sequences is just likable enough 
that it makes you want to stick around until it gets really funny again for about five minutes. And then mm-hmm. it stops being super funny, but it's still likable. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. That's I wouldn't call that a comedy classic, but it's they're doing their job. Quasi is all of those kind of like likable interim bits and none of the genuinely funny bits. <laughs> there is no sequence in this movie that feels legitimately inspired. In fact, I would argue that the majority of the movie uh, feels like they had the idea for a joke, didn't develop it, mm. thought we'd figure it out on the day, and then didn't. Because it's just pointing out something that should be funny, mm. talking about it for a bit, well, here, and then here's, moving on. Here's an example of a joke they tell in this movie mm-hmm. that I think is just emblematic of what they're doing. Um, mm. uh, the plot of Quasi is that Quasimodo is, he's no longer the bell ringer at Notre Dame. That's his old life. Yeah, he did, that, he, a, he did that a while ago. It was his old job. And now he's a, a torturer. Yeah. For the, the local yeah. regime. He's claimed uh, the fame. He invented the rack. He's invented the rack. And the, the joke is, I've invented the, big, the, the worst torture device known to man. Another character says, you invented my mother-in-law? Yeah. That's, that's the level, level of that's, humor we're that's at. That's where and we're at, yeah. When Mel Brooks did something like that, he knew it was a bad joke. Yeah, he played and, it like a bad and joke. And he played it like... And the characters kind of smirked at the fact that they were selling it. And he got such good actors, mm-hmm. like such talented comedians, to perform these really limp jokes. Oh, yeah. Like the, the uh, oldest fucking... Like when, there's a scene in Young Frankenstein... Mm-hmm. Where they literally do a walk this way, yeah. and a guy walks kind of weird, and then Gene Wilder starts walking kind of weird, and then, and then really, Gene Wilder's like, "What the fuck am I doing? Yeah, <laughs> this is the oldest joke in the fucking world. Why am I doing this? Yeah." So he he knew how to take these really old jokes, yeah, and, and make them feel kind of fresh again. Maybe not make them feel fresh, but point like lampshade well, how dumb they were, and in a way that makes humor. them funny. Yeah, yeah, that's my point. You could you could you do the oldest joke in the book, yeah. but because he got really funny people with expert timing, and Suddenly, the oldest joke in the book still gets a laugh out of you, and you're kind of mad at him for it. But mm. he played fair; he did the joke. Yeah, yeah. you know. And I, I feel like that's what they're aiming for with Quasi, and not hitting it because nobody can hit it the way Mel Brooks could. No, that's a uh, high bar. But uh, I would have been very happy for them to do it the way Broken Lizard did it. And <laughs> this is not this, well, this, this, again. This is this is. Broken Lizard in their 50s. and uh, I don't care about that. Like that's, that's You can be funny when you're older. My, that's R- not my, my point. Rodney Dangerfield is, didn't find his comedic voice until he was that age. My, my point is their interests have clearly changed and they've evolved as performers and as directors. And uh-huh. uh, I, I think that their hearts aren't in something like this as much well, as it was Maybe you shouldn't have made it. <laughs> maybe uh, you should have made something your heart was in. <laughs> I, th- there were a few... Uh, it got a few titters out of me, I admit. Okay. And, and there's, there's no way to say... Uh, compliments other other than just say you either find it found it funny or you didn't and there was bits of it i found well you can talk about why because um, when you start yeah. analyzing a joke it just becomes kind of weird and mathematical. Yeah. Uh, e- each uh, each of the members of the troupe plays at least two different characters mm-hmm. uh it, it's i think it's supposed to make it feel like a monty python thing mm-hmm. but frankly they're not trying to make the characters feel different from each other the way monty python did uh uh-huh. So it just feels like they couldn't afford more actors. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. the way it ultimately comes across. Um, um, I, but I, I appreciate some of the weird characters they play. There there were a, a couple cute turns of phrases. Uh, just, you know, their line readings made me giggle a little mm-hmm. bit. I felt like, um, I think it's uh, Lemmy who played um, Quasimodo. 
Um, uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I don't like what he was doing with the character. Like mm-hmm. he's he's trying to to sort of like speak out of the side of his mouth and. Uh, yeah. I, I appreciate their banter, like their rapport, when they're kind of joking off of each other, the, the conversations just sort of flow. Mm-hmm. I wish they'd kind of tapped into that a little bit more, rolled with it, made that a little bit more of the movie, made it a lot more mm-hmm. chatty, because there were some, there's some comedic potential in there. It was Steve Lemmy, is question. Steve Lemmy, okay. Yeah. No, I, I, um, listen, there's all sorts of comedic potential here. Mm. My thing is this, you're going to do a parody of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. You're going to change it so much that you're not even doing The Hunchback of Notre Dame after a while. Yeah. Like, it's... The the plot has almost nothing to do with The Hunchback of Notre Dame. So, at that point, just make a medieval comedy. I honestly don't even know why you're bothering. Mm-hmm. Because you have clearly nothing interesting to say about The Hunchback of Notre Dame or the time period in which it takes place. And well, when there's, you look, there's no commentary And this is the thing. When you look at... When, when Mel Brooks did The History of the World Part 1, or when Monty Python did Holy Grail or The Life of Brian, there's a lot of just funny, silly jokes in it, but there's a ton of it that actually comes from knowing the time period mm-hmm. and mining that very unique thing for comedy. There's a ton of jokes in Quasimodo you can put in literally any film, mm-hmm. or at the very least any oldie, timey film. All right, But there's very little that you could only put in Quasi. Whereas... Yeah, like half of the jokes in Monty Python and the Holy Grail are very specifically Middle Ages jokes. Yeah, about British history. Yeah, yeah and like if you know British history, it's ten times funnier, and if you don't, it just comes across as silly. I don't think they... There's a moment early on when they're like Brian Cox is like introducing it, mm. and he is talking about how everybody knows the story of Quasimodo, or maybe you don't. Nobody reads fucking books anymore. <laughs> and he talks about... So it's how, sort of like a statement of purpose, isn't it? it? Well, yeah, but here's the thing. It's like, that could have been enough. That kind of snide, you don't read books, like like you're reading like a shitty book report of someone who barely glanced at the novel, uh-huh. you know? Uh, that could have been funny, but it's not. It doesn't mm. feel like it was. This is maybe people who half read the novel. It feels like people who just couldn't be fucking bothered. Uh-oh. And it just, hey, I just don't think it's funny. That's what it boils down to. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I think it's just. I think it's lazy. I think it's, and it's frustrating. I like these guys. Mm. I like them. They're funny guys. I've liked movies that they made that other people hated. Oh, I just didn't fucking work. I said I. I like the slam and salmon. I, I, know I, I missed people, that one. Yeah, I couldn't say. The Slime and Salmon is one of the very few occasions when I went to go see a movie and I had the whole theater just to myself. Ah, it's bummer. like maybe, maybe four or five times that's happened to me. All right. Uh, well, listen, <clears throat> let's move on. Uh, tell me about Carmen. Uh, I love Carmen. Wow. Uh, Carmen is great. Uh, this is a film that's directed by uh, Benjamin Milpier, I think is his name. He's a choreographer. Okay. Uh, he's a star dancer with you know noted ballet troops. He did the choreography for Black Swan. Okay. And... Um, this is a modern retelling of the Carmen opera by Bizet. Mm. And the story of Carmen is, is about um, a young woman named Carmen who ends up falling in love with a soldier. And because it's an opera, things end very badly for them. Uh, this updates it where Carmen is a, a Mexican citizen who ends up meeting the soldier character who's played by um, uh, Dudemar from Aftersun. Uh, Paul, Paul Mescal. Mescal. Yeah. 
Uh, Paul Mezcal is a down on his luck soldier who has to take a job with Border Patrol, and the Border Patrol are all you know horrible racist dudes who are, just want to shoot people. Oh, so this is like a contemporary. Yeah, set, okay. set in, in modern day, Got and it. that's where they meet, and they kind of go on the run together, and in being on the run, they fall in love. Uh, and uh, there's no singing in the movie. It's not. Oh, it's not an opera. It's a Weird. dance movie. Okay. Oh. So there's going to be uh, entire sequences where the characters are expressing themselves through these sort of impromptu dance numbers. Oh, well, that's fun. So um, after, after you know, kind of waiting for uh first part of the movie, we get to see sort of this introductory dance where we get to see somebody kind of like, uh, kind of dance the characters into existence, I think. They're sort of like out in the middle of, of the desert and they dance and the characters start to appear and mm. uh, swirl around her in a way. And uh, then when uh, Carmen and Paul Mezcal get together, uh, there's this wonderful bit where, uh, uh, let me look up the name. You can actress, do it. Um, Melissa Barrera from ah. Scream. Oh, yeah, okay, She cool. plays Carmen. Oh, I love her. Um, she uh, falls in uh, with, sort of like they go out onto the run and it's sort of at night and they wander into this abandoned carnival and there is just sort of a dance sequence where she's sort of like dancing with her new environment, sort of a way to lower you into sort of the fantasy world that she's now entering into. Uh, it's beautiful. It's gorgeous because it's directed by a choreographer. The camera stays fucking still. Nice. They're not editing. They're just doing the choreography. How are how are the two? Because um, I imagine Paul Mescal and Melissa Barrera are probably not famous for their dancing. How do they? How do Melissa Barrera is a pretty good dancer. Okay. Um, later in the movie, they uh, end up hiding out in a, a nightclub, okay. and it's run by uh, Rossi De Palma, who you might know from all of Pedro Almodovar's movies. Okay. Uh, and she plays this sort of uh, like gentle school marm type who takes these characters under her wing and there's a, a lot of really wonderful dancing in there uh, meanwhile paul mezcal ends up joining like sort of this underground boxing thing and there's a scene right at the end where rather than dancing the boxing is sort of the dance okay and it's set and all of this is set very impeccably to the music in the background it's not just incidental to is the music it. Um, from Carmen or is it just some of it is mm. there's only a little bit of actually actual Carmen music sort of thrown throughout it's not and it's not driving mm. the, the action in, in a way you might think it is the fight scene at the end is actually this kind of freestyle rap battle kind of, of okay. piece of music where the characters are sort of hitting each other while people are scatting to the the same beat as their fist falls yeah um, it's excellent uh in terms of like story, it's you know classic story, so you can hang whatever you like on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carmen is one of those stories that you could probably adapt to any genre or any time frame and still have it function. You can have a science fiction version of Carmen if you want. Mm. Uh, this is the dance version of Carmen. And in fact, the dancing uh, takes up so much of the film and is filmed in such a way that you begin to see that that's the function of the movie. This was meant to be almost in a step-up kind of a way, uh, an excuse to have exciting dance sequences. Mm. Uh, so it starts to play more like a something that a ballet enthusiast would appreciate more than a cinema enthusiast. Right. Uh, it's commonly complained about when a film feels theatrical instead of cinematic. You can do a lot more with a cinema camera. You can do a lot more with fast editing. You can have 
super duper close-ups of somebody's face and they can act directly to the camera as opposed to theater where they have to act to the back of a gigantic room. Uh, and when a film comes across as theatrical, a lot of people complain. It's like, this, this could be more cinematic. That's not a complaint of mine. I don't mind when a film is theatrical, when a film uh, is uh, showcasing something that would play better in a theater, something like ballet. Hmm. You know what? A great ballet dance is a great ballet dance. Put it on film. Let us watch it. Let us have that theatrical experience if we can't see the ballet live. And if you're going to do that, you may as well fold in a classic story with these uh, magical realism, almost like fantastical sequences that make the dance feel natural in the universe that you're making. And Carmen does all that. And it does it all very, very well. Uh, If you're bored by dance, you're going to be bored the hell (laughs) bored to tears by Carmen. Uh, But I think that you would do well to seek it out and understand this kind of really thrilling uh, piece that the director has put together. I think it's cool that there are certain works of art, of culture, Mm -hmm. that just linger Mm -hmm. a really long time and uh, we keep coming back to them. Uh, and they retain all their power, which yeah. brings me to the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. And um, oh my God, hey, someone had to watch it. It was me. no, nobody had to. I, I, I sorry, did you want to? Did you want to volunteer? Did you want to take this away from me, or do you want to? Uh, you can be mad at me for for doing I, the I, thing I, you were too afraid to do. I'm too old for the Power Rangers, so you take this. One. I was okay. The Power Rangers is a weird fucking beast. Um, I was just a little too old for Power Rangers when it came out. Uh, it was on while I like when I got home. It was on weekday nights, uh-huh. uh, and when I got home and like was doing my homework from like I'm trying to remember, like from four thirty to five was like my big homework time, just to try to crank it all out, do all my math worksheets and things. Um, Power Rangers was sometimes on in the background. Okay, so I probably saw maybe a dozen, maybe twenty episodes. Of this show, which like season one was like 150 episodes. Well, and, it was and, a huge fucking thing, and it was a it was weird a huge thing, and it was cheap to produce Very because cheap. um yeah. uh, it was repurposed. I, I think it was Chaim Saban who, who yes. found it. Um, yeah, Saban. The, what happened was uh, there had been a long history, or or going on long history, of taking animated shows from other countries, particularly Japan, uh, and just redubbing them hmm. and making them a little bit more American. Uh, and that's how we got Pokemon, and that's how we got Robotech, and that's how we got yeah. Voltron. We got, we got a ton of this shit. Maybe not Voltron. Go, go, going uh, back to like Speed Racer, Astro Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. happening and, a long time. And so, like, yeah, it, we don't have to pay for the animation. We just pay to license the. We pay, we pay for the right to distribute it, and we'll redub it for an American audience. So we'll make a few changes here and there for whatever reason we feel like. Some make sense, some don't. And boom, simple. Power Rangers was an interesting choice because they were taking a live action series, but a live action series in which a huge chunk of it was characters wearing full helmets so you couldn't yeah. see their mouths move and you could just dub over them. Mm-hmm. So they took this series about uh, a group of young people who become superheroes, who fight uh, weird monsters that become giant and then they create a giant robot and the robot fights them. The majority of every episode was reused footage from a previous mm-hmm. uh, Japanese series. Uh, and then what they did was they took the actors who were voicing the characters and they would create some wraparound scenes with them. So yeah. here's them in, in high school. Some stuff happens. 
They turn into their hero selves, and, and like then they fight, and then there's a scene at the end. Seven minutes of original footage if to cover that, this. Oh, yeah. God, that's a third of an episode. <laughs> Maybe five. All right, and that was the majority. Thank you, Luca. Luca has strong mm. opinions about Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Um, and, and, it's, and it's it's it, idiotic. It's very juvenile. It's very juvenile. <laughs> and you know what? There's it was, There was a time and a demographic for it. Yeah. Very young people. I was very... Listen, when I was very young, I was easily entertained by crap yeah we all are we don't have, we haven't developed standards yet yeah, and we just the, kind of uh, just absorb what's put in front of us and we find the good mm-hmm. in it come hell or high water because it's what's on tv damn it yeah this debuted when i was in high school yeah so you're I was, already too old. I, I was already too old and, yeah. and we watched a couple episodes like as a group but it was it was more of like a, a camp watch sure. kind of snarking at, at the show that's perfectly valid but to a lot of people they grew up watching it for so long they developed an affection for the characters and it's been going on pretty much solidly ever since they the they, 90s. they took different footage from different shows luca thank you i'll, I'll give you snacks in a minute uh, they took different footage from different TV shows. They would recast the leads. Uh, they would change the fundamental premise and like make it about a new team of heroes. Thank you, Luca. The, the kitty is being very uh, very adamant about a snack. snack. Yeah. I'm sorry, I know we're recording a little later than usual. Try, I'm trying to wrap it up, buddy. Um, there have been nearly 1,000 episodes of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers in one form or another. Oh yeah, I've seen maybe twenty. <laughs> so when they did, they did a big theatrical movie a few years ago. I actually thought it was pretty good. I it's silly, but I had a good time watching it. Um, but uh, when so they decided to do a movie, a one hour movie uh, that was basically a reunion special, where they got a whole bunch of the people who were still around. Sadly, a, a, an unfortunately large number of the cast is no longer with us. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the American cast. The American they, they don't cast. get any of the Japanese actors. No, no, no. Uh, they, thank you, Luca. Thank you. I will feed oh. you in a minute. He's so cute. Um, so so uh, the one of the members of the original cast died in a car accident in the early two mm-hmm. thousands. Uh, another member of the original cast uh, recently passed away uh, after a bout with the you know mental illness, depression, uh, mm. terrible and sad. Uh, What's interesting about this movie is that they they basically bring back the original cast, say they're still Power Rangers all these years later, they've made their own lives, but they're still fighting bad guys. And because they're using a lot of footage of people in these power suits, the characters who are played by actors who are no longer with us, still in the film. They're just still there, and when they come up with plot reasons, they come up with plot reasons to write them out. Okay. So they basically say that uh, the um, which color was it? Because they're they're just known by their colors. They yeah, have yeah. personalities. Uh, the 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 yellow ranger, All right. uh, Trini, uh, who is one of the actors who's no longer with us. Uh, they they live to to be how old they are. They have a teenage daughter, uh, and they die in the opening scene. Rita Repulsa has been brought back to life. The actress who played the original Rita Repulsa in the Japanese show is no longer with us, uh, so they brought her back as a robot. So she's Robo Rita, and she kills it's the Yellow about, Ranger. About as, about as smart as this show usually. That's gets. about as good as you can get. Yeah. Uh, they kill Robo Rita, kills the Yellow Ranger. It's all very very sad. Uh, and we cut to a year later, uh, the Blue Ranger and the Black Ranger, uh, played by Walter Emmanuel Jones and David Yost. Uh, not in that order. Strike that. Reverse it. Um, they're raising the Yellow Ranger. And are arranging the the teenager who will eventually become the Yellow Ranger because of course, uh, and they're trying to figure out how to stop Rita Repulsa and save the other Power Rangers who have been kidnapped 
Uh, so all of the characters played by actors who either couldn't come back or are no longer with us have been kidnapped by Rita Repulsa and been transformed into action figures, which she is using to power a time portal, which will give her the opportunity to go back to episode one. They never call, uh, they don't call it that, but that's basically it. Go back to episode one, tell tell the original Rita Repulsa everything that they missed, so they can just avoid all the crap and just win in episode one. Mm. And so they've got to find a way to stop them. There's a whole bunch of like attempts to sort of bring in a few of the later cast members, tie it into some of the other shows. All of this went completely over my fucking head. <laughs> it is really fucking weird. It's like it's like if you saw Iron Man and Iron Man 2 and then you saw Endgame. You'd be like, "Wait a minute. I missed a lot, didn't I? Mm-hmm. I feel like I missed a lot and you're not going to you're not going to catch me up on this." You're not going to tell me a goddamn thing that's happening, are you? You're just going to keep on going like you assume I saw all 1,000 episodes of the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Um, I appreciate that they confirmed that Bulk and Skull are doing very well. I believe they've started a a restaurant business because they were on a billboard, and I thought that was nice. Um, I'm glad they made something of themselves. Um, I suspect... That if you liked Mighty Morphin Power Rangers as a kid, mm-hmm. that you will watch it. It's an hour long, it's quick in and out, uh, that you will watch this and you will probably find it rather charming. They re- uh, recreate some of the original locations. Uh, the overall tone is very, very much in keeping with the whole vibe. Uh, they take it just seriously enough that if you take it seriously, you'll appreciate it. Um, if you are not a Mighty Morphin Power Rangers fan, Watch it anyway, just just to know what it's like to be lost. Just like uh-huh. it's like I I you ever have those dreams where you're all of a sudden you're like an econ major and you haven't gone to any of the classes and uh-huh. it's like the last test for grad school and you have no idea what you're doing. It's like that, but on Netflix, <laughs> it's just all of a sudden you're just completely baffled yeah, I, by everything uh, happening. I I know that. Uh... Power Rangers is definitely one of those things of uh, if if you saw it as a kid, yeah. you're gonna have affection for it. But there's not big ideas in Power Rangers. Um, I know there were three Power Rangers feature films prior to this. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> this is the fourth one, and I saw I've seen two of them. I've seen all uh, three actually. Yeah, I, I don't know. There's why, uh, yeah, one, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers the movie. One was called Turbo. I saw those, uh, and then there was the more recent reboot would, one, which yeah. was just called Power Rangers. And I think yeah. uh, Power Rangers was the first uh, instance of it being completely American, without any uh, uh, collaboration from the Japanese. There, there might have been some of the shows, but uh, like the later yeah. shows mm-hmm. where they just did it. But I yeah, there, there was no, that, there was no footage, there was no input, there was no writing from any yeah. of the Japanese sources from that the American the more recent American movie. Yeah. Uh, uh, it because it's so idiotic. Yeah. <laughs> the, the premise is really dumb. Yeah. Uh, those first two movies. I didn't see the second movie, but that first movie. Uh, they're just is unbearable. They're just in, uh, insipid. Yeah. There, yeah. There's again. We, they're made for little have, kids. Yeah. We have power and we beat up monster, and that's that's yeah. about as simple as you know as, yeah. as complex as it gets. They're made for little kids, yeah. and adults be damned. You yeah, were dragged they, into the movie, and that's your fault. 
the uh, more recent American film, they, oh, golly, they really tried. They, they, they tried. Uh, what if the Breakfast Club was superheroes? Yeah, like That's they, a good they, they tried to like give the characters a lot more texture. Mm-hmm. We spent more time with them out of costume. Elizabeth Banks plays Rita Repulsa, and she's actually pretty funny. She's overacting. She's having a good she's time. She's doing what she has to do. Yeah. Uh, shameless product placement. Of oh that God. Uh, but the problem is, once they like put on the power suits and start fighting as mm-hmm. mon- like fighting monsters as giant robots and it stuff, gets it, it gets well, it, it gets stupid again. Well, it's all of, all of the Power Rangers stupidness comes in, and uh, it seems like there's there's just nothing that can be done. The the dumbness is just in its blood. I, but I think I think uh, you embrace it, and I think yeah. this is this is I, what I think I appreciate about this is, is that this never apologizes for anything the Power Rangers has ever been, mm-hmm. even though the actors are now like in their fifties or so, whatever they are. Yeah. There, I, it, I don't know if they really want to go back and do this, and like, are you are you saying you want to do another series or something? I don't, I can't imagine. Uh, I appreciated the effort to recreate the juvenile vibes, okay. and not say like, listen, you grew up with Power Rangers, so now we're going to do the grown up version because that's the thing. People are like, I watched Batman when I was a kid, I read Batman comics when I was a kid, but now I'm fifty. And I expect Batman to appeal to the sensibilities of me. Hmm. Sometimes things are made for kids. Yeah. Well, I, but here's I appreciate the thing, Here's that. the thing about a reunion special, though. Yeah, exactly. Does that appeal to kids? That's ironic, isn't it? Yeah. And that's the thing that's really, really weird. And so instead of making it appeal to, like, adults and, like, all of a sudden, like, a new way or, or even, like, making fun of it and that kind of, like... Legion of Superheroes, late seventies Batman TV special that they yeah, did, yeah, uh, kind of make Wait, it a little it, slapstick. Yeah, like it was terrible, but like you know they had a vibe. They're basically recreating the original show for the adult audiences to just sort of remember what it was like to watch mm-hmm. the original show. Ma- Embarrassing stuff and all. Ma- member berries. It's basically member yeah. berries, but you know what? It's made by the people who'd made the original thing. I can't begrudge them. It's not like most of them went on to have these incredibly huge careers, mm-hmm. you know? So I'm not, I'm not upset about it. It's a reunion special. It's a weird beast. It's kind of interesting, just purely on its own merits. Um, and again, if you did, a lot of people I know didn't even know this existed. Like it just came out and it's like, Oh yeah, they really didn't advertise that. Did they? So if this is the first you're hearing about it, boom, you're welcome. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, very strange beast. All right, and then we have one more movie to review. Mm-hmm. It is a documentary. Yeah, about a uh, a, a particular Richard. Uh, it's about Little Richard. Yeah, uh, Little Richard who passed away uh, last year or in twenty twenty one, and, uh, and uh, doesn't always get enough credit. But one of the most important figures in the history of rock and roll. Uh, and and he would tell you so. Oh yes, loudly and repeatedly he would tell yes, you and so. He'd be right. Um, uh, one of one of my favorite quotes from Little Richard. Uh, he went on the Arsenio Hall show. And uh, Arsenio Hall says, you're always talking to yourself up. And he says, and Little Richard said, I am not conceited. I'm convinced. Uh, <laughs> That's fair. Uh, who doesn't love Little Richard? I can't imagine. Little Richard is amazing. Yeah. Uh, when when he died, it hurt. Yeah. Uh, the, when Little Richard died. A um, staggeringly talented performer. Yeah. Uh, and he... He brought it. He brought oh, yeah. it to every performance. He was never uh, found it. Gave a, a certain. He brought a lot of the energy to rock and roll that would inform the rest of rock and roll. He brought energy. Um, he brought sexuality. Yeah, he brought. Um, he brought. Uh, whether or not he was open about it at all the times, he brought mm. a lot of queerness in. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Tutti Fruity, one of his biggest hits. Yeah. You go back. You find the original version of that. 
Mm-hmm. It's about anal sex. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, nice. I actually didn't know that. Yeah. That's fun. Uh, and there's this wonderful montage in this Little Richard documentary where we see, uh, we hear the original version, like the really raunchy version. Uh-huh. And then we see Little Richard's version, which is energetic and fun, but not dirty. The kind of thing uh, that, t- he would play that on like movies for kids. Yeah. Because the, those lyrics are completely banal. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's like, it sounds like he's talking about candy. Yeah. Uh, and they'd show him playing Tutti Frutti. And then they'd show Elvis singing Tutti Frutti. I forgot he did that. Yeah. Uh, and it's, and it's been, uh, uh, what's a nice way to say it? Whitened up a bit. Oh, yes. <laughs> and then they cut from Elvis immediately to Pat fucking Boone oh, singing his version wow. of Tutti Frutti. And they did that with a couple of his songs. Oh, that, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Wild. W- watching it evolve from something exciting that Little Richard did to something not exciting that Pat Boone did. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's, um, that's a lot of culture in a nutshell. A, a, a lot of this movie is um, there was a conflict in in Little Richard's life because he was a, an out gay man from early on. Yeah, and it was his queerness was actually pretty easily accepted because it was always sold as part of like a broader burlesque, and there'd yeah. be a lot of like drag performers. Oh, he's and being theatrical, he's be, yeah. So it's, so it's we can absorb this, and and and, yeah, and he would say, and, and he would say, I am a gay man, and he would yeah. be very open about it, and yeah. it was his blackness was actually more of an issue than his queerness. And then at some point along the way, he turned to uh, the church. He turned to gospel music and he went in the closet after he was already out for a while. Yeah. That was weird. And a lot of the people they talked to in this movie, and they, they talked to some uh, like music scholars and rock and roll scholars and, and queer history scholars. They talked to John Waters, uh, one of the biggest uh, Little Richard fans. John Waters' mustache is a Little Richard mustache. Oh, yeah. Um, and they're each trying to reconcile this about Little Richard. Yeah. The fact that he was out and then in. Yeah. Uh, that he said he was a gay man, but it wasn't bringing him the happiness he wanted. So he figured he'd be straight try to try now. to be try to, try to, yeah try to, to yeah ungay himself he, he married a woman and yeah and then he would keep on and then later in his life like mm-hmm. in the 80s and 90s he'd start saying oh i am a gay man but yeah. i but then but i'm not really and yeah. feels like he had a lot of inner conflict about it yeah so yeah. His, his own view of his sexuality was was definitely a, a big point of conflict for him yeah uh, and another big point of conflict for him was not getting the recognition he deserved. Well, yeah. He understood that he needed that recognition, and he heard his own music and a lot of other famous people. A, a lot of artists came forward and said, oh, Little Richard was a big inspiration, and that helped him along, but he was saying it first. Mm-hmm. It's like, David Bowie, yeah, I inspired him, and then, like, a couple of years later, David Bowie would say, yeah, Little Richard inspired me. Of course he did. It's like, Little Richard took the credit first, and I admire that. <laughs> uh and yeah, it, it wouldn't be until sort of later in his life that people would start saying what an important figure he was. So mm. for a lot of his life, people were pretty much ripping off his shtick no, I remember and creating eight- rock and roll thank, due to him. I remember in the 80s, Little mm. Richard would constantly pop up in various movies or shows or oh, things. Yeah. He's, he's in it, like Pee Wee Herman oh, yeah. Christmas special. He was, he was in Mother Goose Rock and Rhyme. Mm. He was great in it, but a lot of great people were in that movie. Uh, but like I, at the time it seemed to me cause I was a kid and no, I wasn't there when he was helping invent rock and roll. Um, 
he seemed like a fun novelty act. Mm. Here's this really fun outlandish guy. I didn't I didn't understand queerness yet. Yeah. But I was just like I knew he was I knew he was cool. Uh-huh. I knew I wanted to can I dress like that? That's awesome. He's dressed <laughs> like a badass. This guy's awesome. I want to do this. Um Yeah, he he wasn't being introduced to my generation. Mm. The way that someone like Chuck Berry was. Yeah. As like, here's Chuck Berry, who invented rock and roll. Mm. And, it, and here's Little Richard, who was there too. And that was yeah, the like, kind of vibe we got from Little Richard. And yeah, that's not fair at all once you actually it, know it, how he... Yeah, yeah the, the irony is his outsized personality and his mm. constant uh, volume and his... Uh, well-deserved ego mm. uh, in terms of what he contributed to rock and roll was, was so, it was so large that it sort of prevented him from being uh, sort of scholarly recognized. Yeah. Uh, like the squares wouldn't accept little Richard as sort of this important figure when he was yelling it constantly. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, yeah, so th- this movie is this really interesting delve into this really important figure, and I think it does hit all its bases. I think it does uh, go into this this weird ambivalence he had about his own sexuality, right. uh, and how a lot of a lot of the people who are talking about him could not reconcile that. Like they they didn't really understand what his yeah. life was about after a while. Does it feel um, like they, they illuminate that? Like after you watch the documentary, you have a better sense of what Little Richard was going through and how that all came across? Well, no, no, it doesn't want to come to conclusions. It's, uh, you uh, know, trying, nice to to, know. trying to talk about, you know, what, what is, some people felt betrayed by that. Yeah. Uh, some people felt that this was very in keeping of his character. Uh, one of the scholars they talked to said that uh, he was flamboyant in the name of Jesus, uh, which was sort of a way of reconciling that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and it is a way of sort of taking us through this person's history, who mm. he was, uh, his uh, importance as a queer icon, mm. his importance as an African American icon, uh, and his importance as, as an inventor of rock and roll. Yeah, all of that is sort of done uh, responsibly. Like mm-hmm. it cover covers all of the history well, and that it also goes into who he was as a character, and actually like litigates and criticizes mm. and talks about. Uh, his character and his music yeah. in, in in a much more uh, interesting intellectual way. Well, that's the question. So it's actually a really excellent documentary. That, that's the question I always yeah. want to have answer when you're doing a documentary about here's this great artist and I'll tell you everything mm-hmm. about him. Um, is this being made for people who have no idea who this is and need a history mm-hmm. lesson, or is it being made for people who already know who this is mm-hmm. and want to learn stuff they never learned before, or is it trying to strike a balance? It it strikes a balance and it does it well. Um, okay. Well, first of all. Talk about Little Richard. I mean, yeah. it's, it's it's not exactly an obscure figure. No, no, um, no. And there's plenty that he's done. It's not like he ever shied away from an interview. So like, uh, yeah, plenty uh, of, yeah. Um, I re- he was in the Rudy Kobe special. Yeah, like Rudy Kobe. Uh, we had him on the podcast a long time ago. He's a, yeah. um, a lives in Las Vegas now. He's a a, mm. a stage magician. A stage magician. Whose stick yeah. is that he's a mad scientist. <clears throat> yeah, mad scientist magician. And uh, yeah. he had a, a special on Fox in the '90s, and yeah. he got like celebrities like. Kermit the Frog and the Great Gonzo, and Little Richard was one of them. That was one of the and, coolest podcast uh, interviews we ever did because we did it in like his studio. We went to and, his home, and yeah. it turned out that like the studio was like he was like, yeah, this is uh, this used to be a crematorium. This is where Alfred Hitchcock was cremated. Uh, and I was like, okay, what? okay, you're you're cooler than <laughs> That's we are. Yeah. The most amazing place you could record a podcast today. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, uh, not not to call him out, but I got I ran into Rudy Kobe. Oh. I, I got to talk to him again recently. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, really, really cool dude. He was a nice guy. Uh, like yeah. Rudy, yeah. Rudy, 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 look up his special uh, yeah, that fun. was on Fox in the '90s, and it's, it's, very fun. it's really wonderful. 
<clears throat> but yeah, that's that's Little Richard. He was he would show up on the Rudy Kobe special. Yeah. He'd show up on you know, whatever TV special you'd ask him to show up on. Yeah, he was in a lot of movies. He was a lot of shitty movies. He was in Catalina. Caper. He was in Catalina Caper. He was in an MST3K movie. He performed in Catalina Caper. My God. Uh, so yeah, he was just everywhere. And yeah. uh, so I think this film it, it's not going to introduce you to Little Richard. It kind okay. of assumes you at least know a little bit about who he is. Okay. Um, but uh, it's. It's going to go into a, a lot deeper territory uh, than a lot of films of this stripe t- tend to. I was reminded of Alex Winter's film about Frank Zappa. Mm. That's a hero worship movie. It yeah. tells you a lot about Frank Zappa. It takes you through very meticulously through who he was and what he did musically and why it was important. But it's not at all critical of him yeah. or, or anything that like he might have done wrong. Yeah. Uh, He's a pretty shitty father, from what I understand. But that's not really explored too deeply in that Frank Zappa movie. No, it's all about his greatness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, we need to wrap this up because you're getting some serious focus. You, you, can, you can hear. Yeah. yeah let's I'm just kind of run, run it out of voice. We'll, here. we'll make it as quick as we can. We do our uh, mm-hmm. review roundup. Uh, here's where, uh, when, after we've said our pieces, we say uh, overall what we thought about the movie in a general sort of way. We rank movies on a list of, uh, on a, sorry, a scale of C minus to C plus. Uh, the best you can get is a C plus. That's above average. Those are movies we genuinely recommend. Uh, the average is a C. Those movies are mediocre, or maybe there's some good or the bad, uh, good and bad, and they sort of average out. And then below average is a C minus. Those are movies, just generally speaking, we don't recommend. Mm-hmm. On that note, Little Richard something mm-hmm. something. I forget the subtitle again already. Oh, sorry. You can do it. It's called I Am Everything. Okay. Uh, sorry, I'm just really losing my voice. Okay, here. make it quick. A little Richard. Uh, as a C plus. It's really, really great. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, okay, let's see. Uh, we got here. Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Once and always. Um, it's It's gotta be a C. <laughs> It's just, I, if you're a huge fan of the show, maybe you'll geek out and you'll, you'll think it's a C plus, but it's, I'm impressed at how after all these years, they didn't try to make it more than the original show. They were content with it. Mm. And there's something I kind of admire about that, that sort of dedication to just keeping the exact same vibe. Not sure it's good, Mm. (laughs) but I appreciate the effort, but mostly it's just a weird experience. Uh, Let's see here. Carmen. Carmen C plus. This is really great. I'm mm. probably going to be thinking about this one a lot. Um, it's just a, just a wonderful work of art. All right, quasi, quasi. Uh, I I know what you're going to say. I'm uh, sure you do. It's I think it's a C. I yeah. think there's it's generally approachable in a way that I find uh, mm. pleasant pleasant to yeah. watch. Uh, I'm going to give it a C minus. I genuinely don't know who to recommend this to. I I right. don't know like who's going to be like that was the movie that was made for me. I'd be like, oh, you you deserve better movies, man. I just wish it was uh, funny. It just wasn't. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Guy Ritchie's The Covenant. Not to uh, be confused with the sexy Warlock film. <laughs> a, a, a C minus, but not not a very passionately hateful one. Mm. Uh, I just wish it had more to say. Right. Uh, the action is fine. The relationship between them is fine. Mm. But yeah. Uh, Ghosted uh, does a pretty impressive impersonation of a movie, mm. but doesn't ultimately feel like you've watched one. So I'm going to get a big old C minus. Right. Uh, let's see. Renfield. Renfield a C. Yeah, mm-hmm. just a C. Uh, Pleasant could could have done a heck of a lot more with its premise. All right. Uh, what was it? Uh, oh, uh, Bo is afraid. Bo is afraid. That's a C plus. Uh, if if you like really long, arty, surrealist panic attack movies, mm-hmm. which I happen to, yeah, uh, then you'll dig it. All right. And lastly, Evil Dead Rise. Uh, Be honest. It's a low C. It's not okay. not, not quite so bad as a C minus. Yeah. Uh, not great. Yeah. G- good violence. 
But yeah. apart from the good violence, not a lot going on. Yeah, it's mostly good movie, violence. Yeah. It's it's a lot of missed opportunities. But yeah, I don't think it's a hard watch. I don't think it's it's not fun. I think mm. if this is your first Evil Dead. You want to see it in the theater, you'll have a good time. So give it a high C. Yeah. I think the good mostly always the bad, but it's still not an unqualified recommendation. Mm. Uh, and that is it for this week. Uh, next week, we'll be back with reviews of films like Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret. The Judy Bloom. And other films as well. Uh, so please stick around for that. Uh, we've also got more podcasts coming. We're actually working on a new podcast for the main feed, which we're very excited about. Uh, so we'll be announcing that pretty soon. Uh, but also, if you want to head on over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, uh, we have a whole bunch of exclusive shows. Uh, we're going to have a Discord hangout and a trivia night before the end of the month. Uh, we'll just need to finalize the date on that. So we'll be making that announcement very soon, if not by the time you've already listened to this. Mm. Uh, and um, yeah, thank you to all of our patrons who show up, support the show. We couldn't exist without you. Uh, we hope you're appreciating, you know, the, we hope you, hope you like the stuff you're getting. We hope you like uh, listening to the shows without commercial interruptions. We hope you like our Oscars podcast, our Star Trek podcast, all that good stuff. Uh, if you want to talk about anything we discussed in this episode, you want to take us a task for anything, ask us a question, anything at all, our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We might read your email in an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. Uh, Whitney, what is our P.O. box if you can handle it? Yeah, we got... <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, send us an actual physical letter to uh, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Uh, we're on Twitter at William Bibiani. Uh, I, I'm on Twitter at William Bibiani. We're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. He's on Twitter at Whitney Seibel. That's right. the bother. Thank you. Uh, and that is it for us. It's a long episode this week. Never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what? <laughs>